Chris, welcome to episode 207 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, uh, if you're following these shows in real time, uh, first of all, thank you very much for doing that. Uh, it really means a lot. Uh, second, you'll know that this was quite the roller coaster of a week here. Um, we had uh, three books this week that stood out particularly as being on, you know, either pole of a uh, my personal quality rankings here. Of course, this is all opinion-based, so don't take anything I say as gospel or uh, stone-cold fact or anything, but we covered two books this week that I would place at the very bottom of our X-Lapsed coverage, uh, Curse of the Man-Thing and X-Corp. I'm not sure we've read anything worse than either of those issues uh, in this entire you know, 207-episode run, and that includes... All the uh, Sunday special series, uh, I mean, including Major X. Uh, so this has uh, been a weird week. And now we end it with Way of X number two, which, whew, boy, um, this is a wonderful book, uh, a, an absolute delight. It's a book that, it's one of those good news, bad news situations, right? I mean, it, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Not to put the cart completely before the horse, but... I almost don't think I have, like, adequate verbiage, adequate vernacular to talk about how good this book is. I don't think that I <laughs> measure up to this book, so it's quite intimidating to uh, come up against such a damn good book. Um, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Way of X number two. July 2021 cover date. The story's called Let Us Pray, and it's pray, P-R-E-Y, like, a, you know, Eating, you know, uh, praying on an animal or something, or praying on whatever, I suppose. Written by Cy Spurrier, art Bob Quinn, colors Javert Tartaglia, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits, let's see if I can get her name right this time, Andrews Belisteros, Thomas White Sabolski. Cover price, four bucks. Went on sale May 19 of 2021. Now, we pick up pretty much right where we left off last issue. Legion has approached Kurt, who is at Blindfold's gravesite, paying his respects and asking himself some very difficult questions. Now, Kurt refers to him as Legion, which is something that David Haller takes a bit of offense to. Now, I want to say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, it's been a long time, but the concept that David doesn't like being referred to as Legion, I think that was something that Spurrier himself played with during his, uh, his X-Men Legacy run, which at that point was basically a Legion solo book, you know. It was just called X-Men Legacy because they probably figured that would sell a little bit better than a book called Legion. Kurt also mentions the Patchwork Man, hmm, suggesting that Legion might just be 
the Patchwork Man, which stands to reason considering Legion's power set, right? Now, David sneers at this notion, and he is doubly annoyed that his father, Professor X, believes that he and the Patchwork Man are one in the same. Now, if you remember, last issue, Xavier did ask Kurt to help suss out the Patchwork Man, who had been uh, haunting the dreams of Krakoans and the Professor in, in particular. He then forcibly enters into Kurt's mindscape. Now, what he sees here is not at all what he expected, but perhaps what we might have expected. It's, uh, you know, pirate ships, swashbuckling sorts of stuff. Uh, the kind of stuff that we seasoned X-Fans always claim to love about Nightcrawler, while at the same time we're, I don't know, we really can't point to very many stories where he actually does any swashbuckling. I don't know. Anyway, there are a bunch of different Kurtz here uh, showing different aspects of his life, and only one of them looks in any way pious, kneeled, and praying. It's worth noting that there's a Nightcrawler here wearing his Hellfire Gala ensemble because we must never forget that the Hellfire Gala is coming. <clears throat> anyway, David then reaches into Kurt's head and pulls out this weird coin. Now, this is a sign that someone's, quote, been playing silly buggers in Kurt's subconscious. Silly buggers. I, I wonder if that's a, a way that you would uh, order a cheese toasty. I, I, I don't know. Now, Kurt really wants to know what's behind this, who is behind this, what's going on with this thing in his head. And David's all, tut-tut-tut, favor for a favor. Basically, you do something for me, and I'll help you get to the bottom of this. He then leaves some coordinates in Kurt's mind for where to meet him later on, and suggests that uh, this won't just be a one-man gig here. He's going to need some brains to help with this caper, so he better do a little bit of recruiting. Next up, a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Nightcrawler, Legion, Fabian Cortez, Dr. Nemesis, Pixie, and Lost. Remember Lost, right? Back to comics, and we're at the Green Lagoon, where Fabian Cortez is enjoying a glass of wine while wallowing about his termination from S.W.O.R.D. Now, he's also watching Dazzler perform, which, I mean, is she ever not performing? Is she like one of those musicians that get their own dedicated theater in Las Vegas or something, like where they're just always on stage? I don't know. Anyway, Fabes is approached by... Oh, ooh, oh I shouldn't have just eaten that. Oh, oh, Dr. Nemesis. Damn it, I like you, man, but dude, put the hat back on, please. Oh, Jesus. Um, uh, Nemesis... Oh, hold on. Okay, Nemesis apparently doesn't care for Dazzler's music, which... Well, hey, there's another reason to like him. Worth noting, Dazzler thanks the fans and reminds them that... The Hellfire Gala is happening tonight. Hey, y'all. Um, anyone know if there's a big crossover happening sometime soon? Uh, they almost never talk about what's to come in these books, right? I wonder. Hmm. Now, Cortez explains his situation to Nemesis here. He says he was fired and he was humiliated when he was canned by S.W.O.R.D. Which, hey, dude's not lying. Over in S.W.O.R.D. number 5, which we covered in episode 194 of this show... He was forced to plead a case to the Quiet Council completely nude. And then he was replaced with an Iraqi who we'd never met before. Nemesis informs him that, in no uncertain terms, that he simply doesn't care about any of that. He then realizes that he's talking to Fabian Cortez, who he and many of us only remember as being that weirdo Magneto fanatic from the Jim Lee era. Cortez kind of hems and haws, where... Maybe he should have said something like, well, if you thought I was bad, you should have met Exodus. Now, that dude's weird. Uh, Nemesis also mentions that Cortez is responsible for murdering a whole bunch of people. To which Cortez corrects him, stating he didn't kill people. 
just humans. Which, it's a good line, right? It's a pretty decent line for Cortez. It fits with his uh, character. It just doesn't really fit with his history. Because let's not forget about his time with the upstarts, right? Um, He kind of killed mutants for points, right? Anyway, Nightcrawler pops over and asks if Nemesis has any experience dealing with Legion. To which he has. He is, after all, Cy Spurrier's other pet character. And, and I don't mean that in any sort of derisive or negative way. Now, uh, this Legion study of Dr. Nemesis's would lead to the Age of X, if I'm remembering right. Uh, so perhaps not Doc Nemesis's best outing. Now, elsewhere at the Lagoon, Loa and Pixie, whose hair is wildly voluminous here, uh, they're talking about... What else? The Hellfire Gala. You know, imagine if the X-Books paid more attention to the now rather than what's to come. And I mean, that's a, that's a really harsh thing to say about Way of X, which is a just a fabulous book. But I mean, the other books don't quite have the, uh, the pedigree of a Way of X, at least to me. Anyway, Loa has the hot pants for Mercury, but feels weird asking her to the gala and suggests that Pixie ask for her to somehow make it less awkward. And I thought that Loa and Mercury were already an item. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, it's all moot, as Nightcrawler drafts Megan into his new caper. He then passes by our new friend, Lost. Now, Kurt wants to stop and chat, but he's mentally summoned by Legion that he's running out of time. Lost then walks through the lagoon, causing everybody there to throw up. So we see Forge, Fabian, Dazzler, even Dupe, and uh, plenty of randos losing their lunches. And I tell you what, I'm glad that I'm not doing this as a blog post, as so many of my uh, blog posts only get views when certain fetishists find and share them on Reddit. I'm I'm not here to shame, but uh, facts is facts. Nightcrawler then bamfs with Nemesis and Pixie all the way to Saudi Arabia. Of course, these are the coordinates that Legion plopped in his head. Now, they stood before the remains of an Orcus facility, and I think this book is the only one where I see Orcus and I'm like, hey, that could work, (laughs) rather than, oh, no, not Orcus. Inside, our heroes happen across an astral projection of David Haller. Now, Dr. Nemesis mocks his put-on Scottish accent, and that's a reference to some of uh, Legion's earliest appearances. Now, David is surprised by who Kurt decided to bring with him, but considers it to be a pretty smart play. Now, Pixie rushes over to give her condolences for Ruth's passing to Legion, but Legion does not want to talk about her right now. He then leads our trio over to a brain. Hmm, hooked up to a machine. Now, this is David's own brain, which Orcus somehow got their hands on. Now, Legion states that this is all that remains of his physical form. Now, Kurt decides to uh, begin to direct traffic. You know, he asks Nemesis to remain outside and monitor the situation while he and Pixie go inside. And just like that, Kurt and Megan are inside David's mind, and as you might imagine, it's a pretty chaotic place. Now, I'm guessing the characters that we see beating the hell out of one another are representations of David's multiple personalities. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go. Info page. It's a partially redacted Orcus Protocol internal memo. Now, Orcus has David's brain, right? How'd they get it? Well, they received it from Legacy House. Now, of course, that's the lo- the auction house from recent issues of Wolverine. So it's like, hey, you know, Way of X seems to be like the only X book that's trying to weave all the other books together. <laughs> I really, really like it. Now, they've expelled the main David Haller personality. 
uh, Orcus, of course. They're using the remaining personalities as sort of a... Krakoa simulator? Or maybe just a society simulator, I suppose. Doesn't have to be Krakoa. Uh, this way, they can try to impose different variables which might lead to a societal collapse. Which then might give them an idea of how to cause a real collapse for a real society, perhaps the Society of Krakoa. Very, very interesting stuff. Now back to comics, where David mentions that one of the only things he can remember is something that Ruth, blindfold, had whispered to him, which may or may not have actually happened. David isn't even quite sure himself. Now the whispered message is just one word. The word is inevitable. He's not entirely sure what, is, what she meant by that. Is Legion himself inevitable? Is the fall of Krakoa inevitable? Both? Neither? Who knows? Now, Dr. Nemesis, he interjects with another word here, anime, which is, of course, Japanese cartoon. No, no, it's, a, it's actually a sociological term, which refers to a society without standards or values. Now, a breakdown of social bonds between the individual and the community. So, damn it, Spurrier's done it again, hasn't he? Last time out, we discussed the Dunbar number, and now anime. This is quite excellent. And it's as close to perfect as we're going to get as it pertains to, like, actually verbalizing some of the intrinsic problems with Krakoan life in the fragility of it, right? Now, this is where Kurt and Pixie realize that Orcus is using David's brain to come up with ways to take down Krakoa. You see, there's an element of Orcus implanted here in this mindscape, and it kind of kind of looks like that little Nimrod from X to the Third Power, year 1000, back in Hoxpox. Now, it keeps repeating a simple phrase, me before we, as a way to, perhaps, break up a collective and make people, or remind people, about the individual. And, I mean, we've talked a lot about societal norms, right? Especially as it pertains to Way of X, things like the Crucible, stuff like that. Now, the Dunbar number is kind of predicated in this. As mentioned, weird rituals like the Crucible, they are things that, for better or for worse, they unite Krakoa. They become cultural, right? They become customs that unify, that even the most polar opposite citizens of Krakoa, they have this one thing in common, right? Now, this foreign Orcus element is trying to be a monkey wrench. And from the looks of it, it's working, right? Because Legion's various personalities are just beating the holy hell out of one another here. It's breaking up the hive mind. It's breaking down traditions and customs. You know, and traditions and customs, they don't have to be things that are hundreds of years old. They could be brand new things. You can decide on a new tradition in your home right now, right? It's just uh, this reminder that there is an individual. It's, it's very, very powerful stuff here because... One of the things we've been talking about since we started this little project is, like, hive minds, right? The phalanx, they're all a hive mind, right? Um, we talked about that during the, the Powers of X stuff. Here we have uh, the mutants cheering on murder, you know? It's hive mind-ish. It's very, uh, there aren't very many dissenting voices, right? Now, how can our heroes stop this? Well, I mean, we don't know how they can stop it on the... On the macro, right, as in in the real world on Krakoa, but in the micro, they can at least, you know, soothe David's mind here. Dr. Nemesis suggests that they utilize the science of homicide. Now, 
<laughs> Dude, I love you. Now, uh, go put your hat on so I can bear to look at you. Because uh, Nemesis' scenes would be so much better if he was just wearing his damn hat. Uh, Nightcrawler then takes Nemesis's pistol, right? A very powerful scene here. He aims it at David's brain, knowing what he has to do. David's brain is the only thing that remains, and as long as it's alive, David cannot have a resurrection because he is technically still alive. And David's brain is being used by Orcus as a setting for a controlled experiment. So we got to figure this out. So Nightcrawler aims the pistol at David's brain, and then he goes to say a prayer. And uh, this is powerful stuff. He says, forgive me, Father, for I have... You know what? Never mind. And then he shoots the brain. Powerful, powerful scene. Um, Seeing Nightcrawler in such a position, I don't think I've ever seen Nightcrawler kill. I don't think I've ever seen Nightcrawler hold a gun. Um, This is really, really good. Um, Now, this is why David brought Kurt here, right? This is the favor for a favor. Kill what remains so that he could be resurrected on Krakoa. But, I mean, to put Nightcrawler in such a position to do this, I, I love it. I love this because it's such a conflict, and it's like giving flesh to internal strife. That we we know that Nightcrawler has this weird dissonance inside right now. He has his faith, right? He has what he believes to be true in his heart and his soul. But this is a new world, right? Let's continue along here. I also love that Pixie is here. Because this provides such a stark and wonderful contrast in deaths between her voluntary death last issue and Legion's voluntary death here. They're the same but different. Pixie basically ran in front of a uh, speeding truck last issue. She ran right in front of a machine gun and, and got blown to bits. And here Legion... Well, I mean, it's, it's a voluntary death for sure. He begged for it. But it's still different, right? This was as close to a crucible event that didn't happen in the crucible. This was like a mercy killing. This was a way to make Legion whole again, which is kind of the whole thing for the crucible, right? And the fact that Kurt had to do it, Kurt, one of the kindly ones, right? He had to do this. It puts him in such a strange position, and it's, it's phenomenal. It's really, really good. Let's go to the info page that follows this. It's an excerpt from The Book of Redacted. Now, Nightcrawler talks about having to kill David, and he sees this as the first step in creating the way. He also mentions that this was both an ugly act, but, and this is important, an act that broke his, quote, thoughtless conditioning. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure if he's starting to second-guess his own, you know, Catholicism or Christianity, I don't know if he's considering that as conditioning. Uh, And if that is the case, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. We'll have to, uh, you know, I mean, Spurrier has bought a lot of goodwill with these two issues so far, so I'm I'm on board. I'm willing to see how he handles this, and I have uh, have faith that he will, uh, and I mean, that's no pun intended, but I have faith that he will, uh, that he'll treat it with tact. Now, let's get back to comics here, and we are already at Legion's Resurrection, and this is very likely the same day. I mean, it is the same day, because Dazzler had mentioned that the gala was going to occur that night, and the gala definitely hasn't happened yet. 
Now, this resurrection is being treated as something very, very important. After all, Legion is Charles Xavier's son. Um, he's also an Omega-level mutant. And, well, um, hmm, he's also got precognitive abilities. So there's that. This is a big deal. Here's the thing. And this is friggin' awesome. Legion is hatched from his gold ball, right? And Xavier's there, and he refuses to use Cerebro to download David's consciousness into this new body. Not until he's sure it's 100% safe. Safe from what? Hmm, is that a reference to the precognition? Maybe. Doesn't matter, though, because David doesn't wait for Daddy. He just downloads his consciousness himself. Damn, I love this book. David then mocks Xavier's silly Cerebro helmet. Damn, I love this book. Um, Now, Xavier tries to explain away his hesitation by blaming it on the fact that the Hellfire Gala is coming up. Oh, is it? I didn't know. Now, David responds flippantly, suggesting that Chuck can always find something more important than his own son. I say it again. Damn, I love this book. Um... David then decides he's going to continue using the name Legion here. This is a callback to a conversation that he and Kurt had earlier in the issue where Legion saw the name Legion as derisive, you know? And then uh, Kurt says, they call me Nightcrawler because Nightcrawlers are disgusting blue worms. So, you, you know, you, you take what you can. You make things your own. You know, you take, you take the pain out of things. And so Legion, finally feeling somewhat comfortable, I suppose... He's, uh, he's okay being Legion again. Now, Magneto welcomes him back, and he invites him to participate in Krakoan society. David flat out refuses. He says, I don't trust you, Magneto. Xavier then goes, hey, wait just a minute. To which David tells him that he doesn't trust him either. <laughs> I mean, I could just cry here. Uh, this is basically everything we've been theorizing and mulling over over the course of the past 200 plus episodes. And here it is, being given... Beautiful four-color flesh. It's, oh man, it's it's amazing. Legion then points to Nightcrawler and says that he is someone he trusts. Kurt doesn't know all the answers. What's more, he, he knows he doesn't know all the answers. Legion suggests that there are secrets here on Krakoa. And uh, that Kurt seems to be the only one who can see that. I really think I'm going to cry here. <laughs> now he tells Xavier to go ahead and build his empire. Because he and Nightcrawler... They don't care about that. They're after the hearts and minds of Krakoa. We then head to our wrap-up, and this is powerful as well. David and Kurt head to that cliff that Nightcrawler hangs out at sometimes. And uh, you remember the Patchwork Man? Let's talk a little bit about the Patchwork Man. David's not the Patchwork Man, but he knows who the Patchwork Man is. And this is part of the reason why he doesn't trust Magneto nor Xavier. You see, the Patchwork Man is Onslaught. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, Wolverine vs. Vampires, take 100. But now let's try and talk about Way of X number two here. This is a toughie, because um, I've talked about the way I uh, set up my scripts before, right? Uh, You know, I'll do a synopsis, then I'll do my little talking time segment, right? Where it's just like, hey, let's collect our thoughts, talk about main takeaways, stuff like that. And well, with this one... I got to the talking time bit, I wrote a bunch of stuff, and then I realized that I was basically repeating everything I was saying in the synopsis, so I got rid of it. And then I wrote some more stuff, and it was the same thing, (laughs) over and over and over again. It became blabbering, 
Um, and just like when when there's a book that I hate and I and I don't want to just repeat how much I don't like it over and over and over again because it's it's tiresome. It's beating a dead horse. Here we have a book that I absolutely love. It's somehow it somehow trumped the first issue of this series. Way of X number one, I think, was as close to perfect as we were going to get of a as an of an X book in current year. Way of X number two is somehow better. I, I didn't think it was possible, but there's just so much to love here. There really, really is. It's books like this that remind me why I love the X-Men. It reminds me why I'm spending dozens of hours a week, you know, analyzing, writing, and performing shows about the X-Men. It's books like this that make it worthwhile. It's books like this that make it a pleasure and make it a joy and make it something that I look forward to. This is phenomenal. If you're not reading Way of X, please, please do so. Give it a try, um, because this is what this is what we've been building to for almost two years now. To me, it's not about the far-flung space stuff. It's not about fancy clothes that Jumbo Carnation makes. It's not about swords. It's not about vampires. It's not about Otherworld. It's not about Madripoor. It's this. This is what we've been building to, and this is a book that's so good, I, I suggest that we don't deserve it. <laughs> you know, it's just... Really, really good. Um, now, since I was giving my thoughts throughout the issue here as it pertains to thing like, things like Kurt's faith, uh, the position Kurt's been put in, uh, the nature of voluntary death, we talked a lot about that during during the conversation, during the synopsis. Uh, we talked about the sociological elements here, uh, the Dunbar number and uh, anime. Awesome stuff. Um, it's stuff that actually fits into the story. It, it kind of shirks pretentiousness. You know, it doesn't quite veer into just a, hey, Cy Spurrier's smart, and now he's going to tell you how smart he is. I, I often make jokes like that when we talk about an issue of X-Force, where it's like clear, to me anyway, that Ben Percy learned something that week that he wrote this, and then he's like, huh, how can I shoehorn this into the comic? And then he does, and it's very, very awkward. And we'll get like a page of them talking about like some sort of a uh, Norse gods or something, or Valkyries, and it's like, where, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> Why is this getting a couple of pages in an issue of X-Force? Then you think, ah, Percy probably just read this somewhere and he wanted to share it. Here, Spurrier is actually giving us stuff that matters. Stuff that takes a look at Krakoan society for exactly what it is, a society. And for a, an entire line that's been building up this aspect of mutant life... As a society, as a community, as a people, as a nation, this is the first time that we're actually seeing it studied in such a way and analyzed in such a way where, you know, it's easy to say, we're going to build a nation, we're going to build a community, we're going to build a society, and in fact, the X-Men have done it many, many times. We had Utopia, we had Genosha, we've had different areas where mutants just congregated. Central Park, San Francisco, they were making their own place. X-Men Red, trying to get a seat on the UN. Trying to make a society, trying to foment this idea that if all mutants are able to come together, everything's going to be fine. And we haven't had any pushback on that because, I guess, A, it's a pipe dream, right? B, it stands to reason on paper that if you can pull everyone together 
and get rid of hate and get rid of things like uh, just differences in general, get everybody on the same page, then it'll be for the betterment of everybody. This is the first book that kind of throws the wrench in that. This is the first book that says societies are multifaceted. It's not just about a government. It's not just about a people. It's not just about customs and traditions. It's about the individual. And what's more, it's backing up its claims with actual social science and psychology. And it's delivering this information in a way that doesn't talk down to you. It doesn't make you feel stupid. It makes you feel like you're learning while not being unlearned. You know, if that makes any sense at all here. Sometimes you'll be talked down to. It's like, hey, we're going to sit you down and we're going to talk at you. This actually introduces these topics here, makes you comfortable with these topics, and lets you apply them to Krakoan society and societies in general. It gives you food for thought that transcends the X-Men and comics and entertainment. This is real-world stuff here. And, I mean, I, I really just can't say enough good things about it. This is just wonderful. Again, my only complaint about this book Put a hat on Dr. Nemesis, please. Please put a hat on that guy. I love the guy. I think he's fantastic. I think he's a wonderful fit. I couldn't imagine anybody but Cy Spurrier writing him. But for God's sake, man, put a hat on. Please, please, please. Let's talk a little bit about Onslaught. This is an excellent way to give us a swerve as to what the Patchwork Man is here. You see Patchwork Man, the last page of last issue has Legion on it, and you think... Bada-bing, bada-boom. Done, right? Patchwork Man in the beginning, closing with Legion. Okay, Legion's gotta be the Patchwork Man. And as obvious as that was, I wasn't even mad at it because it made sense, right? It works. Legion is very much a Patchwork Man. He's got skaty 800 personalities, each with their own power. Stands to reason that he would be referred to as a Patchwork Man. And the fact that he is kind of nuts, yeah, I could see him haunting dreams, right? Why not? But here, the swerve. The patchwork man is Onslaught. Literally a patchwork between Magneto and Xavier. Now, if folks don't know, and I'm sure if you're listening to this show, you know what Onslaught is. But uh, in X-Men Volume 225, Xavier had uh, mind-wiped Magneto, kind of gave him a psychic lobotomy after he had yanked the adamantium out of Wolverine and had done plenty of awful things. And this act created Onslaught. A mixture of Xavier and Magneto. Of course, that led to the whole Heroes Reborn thing, and uh, I mean, there was, there's a lot to talk about with Onslaught, but we won't, because I'm sure as we go through this series, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about Onslaught as we go. Now, what I really love about this is the fact that we didn't get some cryptic article on Bleeding Cool about the new event, Onslaught. We're bringing Onslaught back. We have Inferno. We're going to do Onslaught, too. No, this looks like it's just going to be something that uh, that Legion and Kurt are going to deal with, at least at first, and hopefully hopefully this doesn't turn into whatever is going to be after Inferno. But, I mean, these are the X-Books, and of course we need events. At least for now, it's sticking to this book as far as we know, and I love it for it. Uh, the art here continues to impress. Uh, Bob Quinn's putting out some really, really good work. I mean... I have no complaints about this, except for my, you know, silly one about uh, the mushrooms on Dr. Nemesis's head. Um, again, if you're not reading this, do yourself a favor. Give this a look. Um, this book deserves every purchase it can get. I do fear that it's probably being slept on by a lot of folks uh, as being maybe inessential to the uh, overarching Krakoan story. And uh, 
unfortunately, my voice only goes so far. I feel like uh, less and less people <laughs> listen to this show with every single episode. So my voice ain't quite as loud as it used to be. So I'm going to have to count on everyone out there to uh, tout this book and tell people to, uh, to give it a try. Because it is some very, very special stuff. I think that's all I got to say about this wonderful issue that you all should read. But before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. We're going to start with Damien talking about Cable number 8. He says, I'm back to time traveling through your old episodes as I catch up on Marvel Unlimited. I've had quite a hectic time of it recently, so I'm behind even in terms of Marvel Unlimited. Well, that's a good thing about this show and Marvel Unlimited is that uh, the books aren't going anywhere. <laughs> and the shows aren't going anywhere, so... Whenever you can, uh, your, your thoughts are always appreciated and uh, looked forward to, so anytime is fine. Damien continues, I don't know if I'm just having a bit of a stupid day, but I really did not notice that the kidnapper was meant to be another cable until way after it was revealed. In fact, I had to turn back a few pages to reread the relevant bit again. You're definitely right to call out the fact that the middle-aged clones don't look remotely like cable. It should have been guessable. And that's true. That is something that uh, I felt I felt pretty uh, pretty silly myself there because I think we were supposed to know it. Um, and I mean, as much as we love Phil Noto's work, it wasn't clear in this issue. It was just very very odd that uh, I don't know. Nobody recognized it. We didn't recognize it. The characters in the book didn't seem to recognize it. And and that, then again, they shouldn't have because it, they really didn't uh, it didn't really pass for a uh, middle aged cable. It just looked like. Some dude. Don't know. And, I mean, we've heard about the Order of X for a little while now, so, I mean, we didn't know that these were strifes or cables or whatever they are. It's just weird. Damien continues. There was some interesting stuff in your discussion of clone resurrection. I do wonder if we're meant to see Domino's change, in, change of attitude to killing being because they're clones of Cable and therefore mutants rather than human. Ultimately, Krakoans are allowed to kill anyone who could be resurrected. The exception for the Cuckoos does imply that an exception could be made for Scout. They're not on the Quiet Council, but I'm sure having two Wolverines, Logan and Laura, in your corner would help. It feels more and more like a refusal to, ref to resurrect Madeline is personal, and the clone thing is just an excuse, a bit like how the no-humans rule only comes into play for Juggernaut. And yeah, I, I do wonder... Um, we know that there are certain rules here, some written, some non-written, right? Um... I think when I think about the clones, it's more about the uh, the no duplicates. That's what I kind of that's what I kind of think about because uh, we know that the cuckoos are an exception to the no duplicates since they are uh, clones in a way of uh, of Emma Frost. Where I don't know if like we talk about Scout over in New Mutants, where it's the Scout story in New Mutants is just wonderful. But it's like if Scout dies, do they just consider that a problem solved? You know, do they or do they do they actually honor the resurrection protocols for Logan and Laura? Do they make an exception to their no dupe rule? So to bring that back to Domino, is she, you know, killing these cables willy nilly because she knows they could be resurrected or because she's solving a problem? I don't know. And I mean, I don't know if it was this issue or the next issue of Cable, or even if there was a next issue of Cable at this point, I don't remember. But in an info page, I believe, uh, we learned a little bit more about duplicates in as far as what's allowed and what's not allowed, and they they expand upon what isn't allowed, right? They even talk about, like, time travelers. So if old man Cable comes back and young man Cable is there, then what happens if one of them dies? 
it's, you know, I, I think uh, we're going to get some more of these answers as we go. Uh, Damien continues. Ultimately, I find myself wondering why Cable and Domino automatically viewed their foes as clones of Cable. Surely they could be clones of Strife. Can they tell the difference? Also, why have the clones got symptoms of the techno-organic virus? Are their metal parts T.O.? We all keep wondering how Warlock will relate to Mora's plans, but what about Cable? You know, that's interesting. I didn't even think about uh, these clones having the, uh, you know, the techno-organic parts. And uh, if that is the case, how did they, how did they do that? Right? Uh, that's, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, Damien continues. Overall, though, I really enjoyed this issue. I was delighted to see Domino being fun again, but I am now craving chicken gyoza with sweet chili sauce. And by the way, Domino didn't share perspective-destroying huge baths with Cable back in the day. That was actually copycat slash Vanessa. Domino was chained up in a European castle throughout that period, and I feel like I need to hand in my my fake-ass X-Fan club card here, because yes, of course... Of course that Domino wasn't Domino back in X-Force number 1 through 9 or so back in the in 1990, 1991. That was actually copycat. We didn't get the first appearance of the real Domino until I think it was like X-Force 9 or 10. So yeah, my bad everybody. That's, uh, that's on me. It's also on um, Ed Brisson who wrote the Extermination miniseries because in that one he had Boom Boom comment on the baths that Domino and Cable would take together. So... Maybe there were just a whole lot of baths that were off-panel. That might be enough to get us a no-prize and to get me off the hook for, for making that mistake. Anyway, Damien wraps up with, Until Marvel starts shipping their comics with a box of dumplings, make mine X-lapsed. And now I'm wondering exactly what Gyoza are. I'm going to have to uh, look into that and see if, uh, see if I can try one of those. Uh, I'll, I'll let you all know. I'm sure you're all on uh, the edges of your uh, respective seats to know if I uh, dig Gyoza. But thank you so much for writing in, Damien. It really, really means a lot. Next up, Evan talking about one of our trips off the beaten X path here, Modoc Head Games number three. He says, glad you included this one. I probably would have gotten around to it eventually, if for no other reason than the novelty of Modoc's TV voice co-writing his adventures. But Gwenpool is always a draw for me. She tangled with Modoc back in the early days of her series. And yeah, I've actually uh, got a few of those issues. Um, the first... Three or four, I think, and uh, her uh, her entanglements with uh, Modoc were pretty fun. I mean, that's Gwenpool's just a fun book. Uh, it's a book that I, you know, by all rights should hate. <laughs> when I when I found out that Gwenpool was a thing, I was just I rolled my eyes and it's like, oh come on. But then again, I also thought she was a uh, she was a mixture of Gwen Stacy and Deadpool, which uh, she's not. She's not. I think that was a uh, intended as the fake out, and of course. She was introduced as, you know, a Gwen cover variant. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, very fun series. I, one I'd recommend, and I'm pretty sure at this point they've got a most or all beyond Marvel Unlimited. So if you want uh, if you want a giggle, if you want a fun story, check out uh, check out Gwenpool. And uh, also Gwenpool uh, Strikes Back, which we did a whole episode on here on the show. Evan continues, X-Factor would have been a nice place to see her turn up. But, since we know that title's days are numbered, I think a great landing spot for her might be the Hellions. Now, aside from the possibilities opened up by Zeb Wells writing the character, it makes sense that Gwen might be viewed as a problem mutant. And I think there could be a connection between her, Sinister, and... Franklin Richards. Hmm. Franklin's unmutanting happened around the same time, give or take, as Gwen's mutant-defying. 
and I think Franklin might be somewhat responsible for Sinister's sassiness. The first time I remember him acting that way was in Hickman's Secret Wars, and who put the Marvel Universe back together after that? Franklin. So maybe Franklin picked a more interesting, to him, version of Sinister, and maybe even one that seemed a little less dangerous. Or maybe it was a filing error. But suppose Sinister figured out that he came back different, and figured out Franklin was responsible. And maybe he figured out a way to dampen Franklin's powers, or take advantage of the situation and graft those powers, he's gotta have DNA, right, onto Gwen Poole. So now Franklin is isolated from Krakoa, Maybe Sinister sent that message, not Professor X. And Sinister pulls some strings to get an impressionable young reality warper on his team of square pegs. Probably not, but maybe. Evan, 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 every time you give us a theory, uh, it kills me a little bit because it's exactly what I'd like to see happen. I I, I would love to see some form of this play out. Um, will it? I don't know. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot, even when we did the uh, the Fantastic Four issue uh, back in the day, one of the things that stuck with me was how casual uh, Professor X sounded when he was, you know, communicating with Franklin there. I think he said, like, till or won't or something. It just didn't sound very Xavier-ish. It sounded a little bit out of tone for him, which I think, I mean, we could look at that a couple different ways, right? It's either Dan Slott not being able to write the character, <laughs> or... A hint that what we see might not be exactly what we think we see. So for all we know, that was done, you know, on purpose. Like Xavier's casual tone there was uh, something we were supposed to pick up on. And think, huh, this doesn't seem quite right. And the fact that, I mean, they kind of just dropped it after that. We haven't seen this addressed in any of the X-Books. Xavier hasn't mentioned it at all. Um, it, It could stand to reason that this is something that will come back around. Maybe we'll find out that Franklin is a mutant, but whoever sent that message was just trying to uh, make him think he wasn't. I think uh, it could be a fun story. I don't know if I have the faith in uh, editorial to pull it off, but uh, fingers crossed, because I I hate the fact that Franklin's not a mutant anymore. It's not like we ever had him on the team, but uh, I always liked that possibility, and as a a sucker for the 12 storyline that we never really got, I I was always intrigued. By uh, Franklin's mutantum status So it'd be nice to see And uh, I mean anything with Gwenpool Is uh, something that I'm going to want to check out here I'm actually quite surprised that uh, I mean she is in the mutant offices now And we just don't see her ever It feels like a It feels like a weird omission if, I, I figure that any creative team That had her within grasp Would, uh, would try to utilize her Just I mean, even just as a background character in a book, just as a a fun aside, and we just aren't seeing that. Uh, I think she's only shown up two times since since Gwenpool Strikes Back. We saw her in the lead-up to that Fortnite thing, and then we saw her on one page in X of Swords' destruction. So... Yeah, it seems like they might be leaving something on the table with her. Maybe maybe one of these days someone will come and uh, and rescue her from uh, Krakoan Limbo. And if it's Zeb Wells, I mean, that's uh, that'd be great. If it's Leia Williams again, that'd be great as well. I suppose time will tell, and maybe maybe they'll reveal that she's not actually a mutant. Is, uh, I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But uh, thank you so much for writing in about that one, Evan. Uh, Modoc was a fun issue that I, uh, I didn't expect much out of. But uh, had a really, really good time with it. I loved the the intro bit in Krakoa with uh, with the signs and stuff and seeing skids. It felt to me like 
the writers involved here, uh, Oswalt and um, I can't remember the other writer's name off the top of my head, but felt to me like they got Krakoa in a way that a lot of the you know main Marvel books don't. You know, it's just that place where the mutants live, where here it looks like they actually did a little bit of homework and had some fun with what they learned. So really fun stuff. If you haven't read the Modoc thing, I believe it's done now. It was a four-issue miniseries, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm pretty sure all four issues are on Marvel Unlimited already, and uh, there's bound to be a trade collection. I think we talked about it in one of the solicit uh, you know, news bits that we do on the show uh, once a month. It's one that I would really like to get into myself, just to uh, read the whole thing and uh, see where I fall on it. But, uh, you know, haven't figured out how to make those extra hours of the day show up. So maybe one of these days, maybe when I'm uh, retired, I'll take a look at uh, Modoc Head Games, and I would recommend you all do the same. But that'll do it for the mailbag, and it'll do it for this episode. If you'd like to join in on the fun and uh, be part of the mailbag, I would love for you to write in. I'm a very, very lonely individual, so it would mean a lot to me if you would. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Ace Comics. Uh, find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Last hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can join us on Facebook, 90sXmen is the group. And for all your archive listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available on all the pod aggregation sites and devices and applications that you know and love. And while you're there, if you enjoy what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, tell a friend or two, spread the word, share the show, do whatever you can to, to help more people discover this thing. It would really, really mean a lot. Speaking of which, it means so much to me that you'd hang out today to discuss this wonderful, wonderful Way of X book. So thank you all so, so much. For allowing me to be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode 216 of X-Lapsed, or uh, maybe it's episode 
I don't know, 15 or 20 of uh, podcasting with allergies. <laughs> this is a, it's been a rough go at it this morning, trying to, uh, trying to get some words out of this mouth without uh, grunting or snorting or uh, just uh, being befuddled by uh, seasonal, uh, seasonal allergies, I suppose. But uh, today, we're going to be taking a sidebar from the Hellfire Gala proper, uh, simply because, uh, well, Marvel told us to read this book next. So let's get into this uh, sort of kind of side story in Children of the Atom number four. It's had an August 2021 cover date. The story's called Captured, written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina. And uh, I think when we did the unboxing of this month's uh, DCBS box, I was under the impression that Tom Muller was the artist of this one because I I was going to the Marvel Wiki in order to just fill in, you know, bits and pieces of the scripts here before before my box arrived, so I wouldn't have so much to do when it finally did. And that listed Tom Muller as the penciler of this issue, and alas, he is not. Uh, Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman. Edits, Andrus Ballesteros, White, and Sabolski. Cover price $4, on sale June 9 of 2021. Now this time out, um, our internal monologuer is going to be Benjamin Benny Thomas. Uh, We know him as Marvel Guy. And our story opens at Peter Corbeau Prep in Brooklyn, so I'm guessing this is named after Peter Corbeau. Uh, I think up until now it had only been referred to as Corbeau Prep. And I'm pretty sure the signage out in front of the school said that as well. Now Peter's on there, so... uh, I don't know if they, uh, maybe they charged by the letter and they finally did a, maybe they did a bake sale and they were able to buy the, uh, the five letters <laughs> that, uh, spell Peter. So yeah, we got Benny. Uh, he hates people, except for his Kota kin. He thinks, Be- he thinks Buddy's pretty cool. Uh, he thinks Carmen is weird, but also cool. Gabe is the best because everyone loves Gabe. And, uh, JJ, well, he's annoying, but they're stepbrothers, so he'll get a pass. Everybody else on the planet, though, they can suck it. Now, speaking of his pals, here they come now. Benny notes that Carmen is wearing sunglasses inside and asks what's up. Uh, We don't get an answer, but I'm guessing this has something to do with whatever the hell it was that happened to her last issue, uh, when she was either shape-shifting or brood baby birthing. You remember? She was kind of, like, hunched over and very bizarre. Now, before they can really talk about this, all four of their phones ping. You see, it's a text from J.J. informing them of the Hellfire Gala. Hmm. Now, you see, Krakoa is going to be opening its gates to humans for this one night only. Now, Buddy, as you might imagine, is uh, very, very pleased with this. She fist bumps and tells the team that this is going to be their best opportunity to go to Krakoa. Even though the gala is not happening on Krakoa, but I think I've harped on about that uh, well long enough at this point. I don't know if... Maybe all the writers don't know. I don't know. But now, I do have a question. Now, Buddy is like the informational gatekeeper on all things X, right? It's kind of like her gimmick. Now, how does she not know about the Hellfire Gala by now? I mean, it's basically global news. I mean, if JJ knows, you gotta assume that Buddy would know. Oh, well. So, Buddy, of course, wants the gang to go. But the rest of her Kota kin are not so sure. Now, she thinks that this is something like an open invite to non-mutants from Krakoa, when, I mean, it's actually not. Uh, there is an invite list, of course. And also, uh, humans passing through the gates is nothing new. 
we've seen that they could if accompanied by a mutant since day one. I mean, House of X number one, Magneto was bringing diplomats from around the world through through uh, Gateway. So this is something we've known about for a long time. I, I suppose it does stand to reason that maybe the kids didn't know that, but I don't know. But it is here that we get our first admission from the Coda kids that they are, in fact, human, or at least not mutant. Uh, and I mean, that was like the worst kept secret of this book, but uh, it's nice to finally have it confirmed. Now, Benny, he goes back to doodling pictures of his favorite mutant, Wolverine. And you know, with a buddy and a Benny in this book, the script I'm going off of right now that I just wrote is going to be perhaps a little difficult to follow at times. So I want to apologize in advance if I refer to one by the other's name. <laughs> I assure you it's all out of accident and my uh, befuddled mind trying to uh, parse words on a uh, digital sheet. Now just then, Cole arrives in the cafeteria, and I, I guess uh, I should mention that we're in the cafeteria, by the way. Carmen runs up to him to apologize for not showing up to his dinner. Now he is annoyed by the sight of her and tells her to beat it. Now, he's still upset that her mutant groupie friends made such a spectacle uh, that night before. Benny gets in between them and tells Cole to cool his jets. Cole tells them to all just to leave him alone, and in a wild act of maturity, he accuses Benny of having the hot pants for Carmen. A teacher, Mr. Boggs, shouts for the boys to simmer down from across the cafeteria, which diffuses the situation, at least for now. The Kota kids leave. Carmen thanks Benny for uh, standing up to, to Cole for her, uh, but still isn't completely clear on what happened during that dinner party. Now, Benny thinks to himself how he'd like to go back in time before they got wrapped up in all this weird mutant stuff. Double-page spread of roll call and cred, our characters are, uh, well, the five characters. Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Last, Gimmick, and Daycrawler. Now, it's time to go to Flashback Land, which, even though it's pretty clearly a flashback, doesn't actually feel like one. Uh, does that make sense? You know, you ever go into a flashback where it's, like, not immediately apparent that it is one, so you just think it's the, you know, the story continuing? Because this could have easily been mistaken for the next scene, albeit a very confusing one. Anyway, we are at Calvert Vaux Cove, or Vox Cove. This is a real place in Brooklyn, uh, notable for uh, housing many abandoned boats. And we can see that here. There is uh, one abandoned boat here. Anyway, the Coda kids are testing out the bits and bobs of technology in an attempt to replicate mutant abilities. So this is like a very, very beta take on our Coda clan here. This is uh, them just futzing around with um, found technology from the looks of it. And uh, we, got, we got Carmen using Cherub's wings here, so they haven't decided on code names or personas just yet. Uh, they're firing lasers at one another. Buddy is bamfing. It's like the world's worst danger room ever. Um, now, JJ nearly hits Carmen with a blast from, I want to say, the visor that Cyclops last will eventually wear. He's, like, holding it sort of like a gauntlet or, like, one of those laser guns that, uh, like, that the Cobra uh, Vipers would have in the old G.I. Joe cartoon. It's very bizarre. Now, Benny gets right in there and starts reading his kid bro the riot act here. Uh, now, when he points to Carmen, a poof of something or another puffs out of his power glove that he's wearing here. I guess we, we know that he has, or he will exhibit powers over emotions or, or, or ways of thinking. So this is where that comes from. He's got these this like hormonal sort of thing in these gloves that he wears. And indeed, this does have a sort of hormonal effect on Carmen. And so she pulls Benny in and gives him a big ol' smooch. 
Now, Gabe tells Carmen that, you know, she really ought to ask for permission before she does something like that. And I wonder if that's how teenagers actually talk now. I, I just don't know. Info page. It's a Vibe Cloud page, which I'm assuming is a take on SoundCloud, like where you can upload your own music and stuff. Now, we have uh, our boy Benny here. He goes by Weapon Extra, and he has an album called Grim Dark Past. <clears throat> okay. Now, the track that we're looking at is called Snicked Snacked, and it features a couple of other performers on it, uh, Dark Colossus and Faintly Frosted Stitches. We're going to find out that Gabe loves him some Colossus, so that's probably him. And we already know that Carmen is Faintly Frosted Stitches, so I guess this is the Coda kids doing uh, the musical thing here. Back to comics, and Carmen is visiting Benny's house. Uh, she's led in by his stepmother, and during this, Benny is still narrating. He thinks back to before his folks got divorced, his life the way it was back then. Uh, he still, still isn't over it yet. Um, now, this house looks quite opulent, and his stepmom, Zhao Feng, who's also JJ's mother, uh, seems like a really nice lady. Now, Carmen is directed to the basement, which is where Benny's currently brooding and uh, also beating on his drum set. Now, his drums have the band name Phoenix Force on them, so I guess he doesn't know that the Avengers stole the Phoenix from the X-Men at this point. He's also got a bunch of X-Men fandom stuff on his wall, uh, Wolverine posters, a couple of Deadpool posters. Uh, I guess he doesn't realize that Deadpool's been taken from the X-Books, too. Anyway, Carmen is here to confide in her friend. Now, Benny takes this as her professing her love to him and makes sure to unsubtly let us all know that he's asexual. Carmen laughs, not at the asexuality, but because she thought it was obvious to everyone that she's a lesbian. Is it, though? Is it, is it obvious? I mean, nobody seems to know. Buddy, her best friend, is not pursuing Gabe romantically because she thinks Carmen's into him. Oh, well. Now, Carmen is not here to talk about any of that. She's here to, to confide in him about whatever it was that happened to her at the end of last issue. Before she can get into the details, however, the rest of the Coda crew shows up. Now, Benny makes sure to boot JJ before getting down to business. So we got our four elder Coda kids here. Now, Buddy, who looks like she just got back from killing Bill, uh, informs the team of her latest harebrained scheme on how to get use these Krakoan gates. Now, you see, during the dinner party at Cole's house, she excused herself to go to the bathroom. But, instead of hitting the facilities, she stole one of Cole's jerseys. Now, the plan here is that they'll use Cole's mutant cooties from his jersey to trick the Krakoan Gates into letting them pass through. I mean, okay. Don't they already own, like, chunks of Magneto's helmet? I, I could have sworn we saw Carmen, like, win those in an online auction, so why do they need Cole's shirt to try this? And, I mean, if, th if it was this easy... Wouldn't, like, bad guys be... We know that the Legacy House exists. We know that there's mutant stuff everywhere. Wouldn't this just be something that every bad guy did by now? I guess they're kids. They just don't think about that kind of stuff, which I can get on board with. Anyway, nobody else seems to think this is a good idea. Now, Carmen is particularly offended that Buddy is thinking about using, quote, a part of coal in order to do this. I, I don't know that Pit Sweat has to give consent. Uh, is this how teenagers talk? I don't know. Anyway, Buddy is finally able to sway the Coda crew by appealing to their fanboyism and fangirlism. Because if they go to Krakoa, they're going to meet Wolverine, they're going to meet Colossus, they'll meet Mystique, they'll meet all their god-tier mutant idols. And so, they're into it. 
info page. It's an extreme web page, which looks to be a take on YouTube. So I guess Rockstube has a bit of competition in the Marvel U. Um, and I mean, if only YouTube had a viable competitor in the real world. Anyway, the hot vids all have to do with the young X-Men, and of course there is some clickbait there as well. Buddy, as Archivist X, comments on this video, giving the team's code names, you know, Cherub and, and, the, and the like here. JJ replies, saying that Daycrawler is actually going by the name Nighty Nightcrawler, so I guess that's still a thing, despite the fact that our uh, roll call page still calls him Daycrawler. I, it's fine. Um, now, someone from Cradle also writes in looking for information. Back to comics, and we are once again at the Coney Island Krakoan Gate. Now, they lollygag a bit more about the ethical ramifications of using Cole's pit sweat without its express consent. They come to some sort of half-assed compromise, but in doing so, they wasted so much time that they find themselves surrounded by a bunch of armored types. I initially thought maybe they were cradle agents, or just, you know, I wasn't sure. I, I really didn't care all that much. So we get a battle, which rages on for, like, two entire pages. A Marvel guy saves Day Nighty Night Day Day Crawler uh, from being captured, thus being captured himself. Now, J.J. winds up being the only member of the Coda crew to get away. The remaining four are all caught and shackled. Now, we find out that these bad guys think that the Coda kids are actually mutants, and I mean, at this point, why wouldn't they? Now, they captured the kids so they could harvest their useful parts while disposing of the rest. They're kind of like the U-Men, who we saw during the Morrison run, which mostly serves to remind us that we're not reading anything near as good as that. Now, we wrap up with J.J. recruiting the X-Men, who don't yet exist, into rescuing his friends. Now, the team we see here includes Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Wolverine, Maggot, Storm, Nightcrawler, Magma, and Pixie, so quite the odd array. Um, I suppose we might assume that the gala has not yet begun, but that is where we leave it. Next episode, we've got uh, the biggie. we got planet-sized X-Men. I hope you're all looking forward to that as much as I am, if for no other reason than to get it in the rear view and be able to talk about what happened in it. But that is for next time. Uh, let's uh, talk about what, uh, I guess, what little there is to talk about uh, regarding the Children of the Atom here. Um, I mean, everything's subjective, right? Uh, I look at this, and the first thing I can think of is like, well, the first question I ask myself is, do we need this? And I mean, of course, this is comics. We really don't need any of it, <laughs> you know? So it's everything I'm saying, you know, take with a shake of salt here. But I'm looking at this and it's just like, we don't need this. <laughs> this feels like the very definition of bloat. Um, I feel like with every issue of this I read, I care less about what happens to these kids. I really have no interest in where they wind up. And I have no confidence that... What happens here is going to have any sort of uh, ramifications on the main line here. We've already looked at the solicits, and we know that up until the sixth issue, we're going to still be dealing with Hellfire Gala stuff. So this is a glacially moving book here. And the uh, cover to issue six has, um, has Gimmick walking through a Krakoan gateway. Which, I mean, do we even need to read the next two issues? You know, uh, we, we know... Uh, or we have an indication of what's going to happen here, and let's say that this book ends with issue six, which I kind of hope it does. What do we get? What do we get? We get Krakoa plus gimmick? I mean, we had six issues of the Juggernaut, which gave us Krakoa plus D-Cell, and we haven't seen D-Cell since. 
are we going to see Gimmick? Is Gimmick going to join the new mutants? Is Gimmick... I mean, we don't even know if Gimmick's actually a mutant yet. But, like, what is what is step two of this? What is going to make it so this was a worthwhile endeavor here? Because I hate to be the money guy, but, I mean, we're four issues in, which is to say $17 before tax. <laughs> you know, and that's American. Out of our pockets for this. I don't know, I just... Uh, it just feels uh, kind of unsatisfying. Um, now let's talk about a few of my takeaways here. I don't have many, because, I mean, this is uh, basically the first three issues with a different coat of paint, you know? It's just from a point of view of another one of the characters here. We're getting inside these characters who we may never see again, so it's hard for me to invest. Um, let's see, we do have some parallels here that I want to address here. The bad guys, the U-men, if they are the U-men, uh, they're uh, co-opting mutant powers, right? They're trying to take the useful stuff, right? They're going to harvest organs, they're going to take blood samples, they're going to do whatever they can, taking the mutantism from the Kota kids, who they believe are mutants, in order to empower themselves. Well, there's kind of a parallel there between what the bad guys are doing and what the Kota kids are doing with Cole's pit sweat, right? I mean, it's maybe not exactly like a one-to-one sort of thing here, but at its core, they're using mutant abilities for their own gain, or I actually don't know what the Kota kids' gain would be, uh, just to go to Krakoa and snap a few pictures with their favorite X-Men, I guess, I don't know, but it is a use of, uh, of mutant power here, so there are parallels there. I'm not sure if they're... I'm not sure if this is something we're supposed to notice or just something that we, or I, did. I don't know. Uh, another thing here, and I hate using some of these terms, but uh, the Coda kids are presented as being, for lack of a better term, and, and trust me, I, I wanted to find a better term, but they're being presented as being woke, right? Uh, for Again, for lack of a better term, of course. And yet here we are with the Coda kids sort of kind of appropriating mutant culture. Now, of course, a lot of this can be hand-waved, right? Because they are children, and children tend to be ethical, or people in general tend to be ethical when it suits them, and maybe issue ethics when when it'll benefit them. So that might just be showing their the human condition a little bit, perhaps. But uh, it does feel a little bit uh, uneven, right? I think my main takeaway here is that this entire series is making me very sad. Now, despite the fact that I could care less what happens to any of these characters, I, I mean, it's it's still very sad. Uh, these kids are like in this weird cosplay fool's paradise, right? They're, you know, they're, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to, to shame anybody, but they, they remind me of like uh, people who, who claim to be furries, but just with the X-Men. It seems like a very lonely road they're headed down here, and it's... Uh, I don't know, it's like you have ostracized kids who are only further ostracizing themselves. It's, again, kind of kind of sad. Maybe that's the whole point of this series. Maybe it's to uh, shine a light on a niche of a niche of a niche. Don't know. If, if that's the case, then maybe it'll be a success. I really don't know. But uh, in my opinion, for what very little that's worth, I, I really don't see a point to this. And... Uh, I don't think I've yet come away from an issue like feeling satisfied, feeling like I was happy or glad to have read what it was that we read. So 
I guess just take whatever I say with a with a shaker or two of salt. And uh, if you're enjoying this, more power to you. Absolutely. If you are enjoying this, uh, let me know why. Tell me some of the reasons why you're digging this. And uh, maybe you'll be able to, uh, uh, maybe not so much sway me, but uh, at least enlighten me as to maybe something that I'm overlooking that I should be paying more attention to. Or maybe something that I'm spotlighting too, uh, I'm too focused on, right? That maybe I should just kind of let go. But uh, the art was nice. The art was nice. I'm a little disappointed that the uh, Marvel wiki was wrong and <laughs> didn't have Tom Muller on uh, pencils here because I-, I would like to see what his art would look like. I've uh, I've only seen his um, his logos, which are, of course, I mean, they are the language of the Hox Pox Docs era, and they're, they're all very nice. So I was wondering what his pencils would look like. Maybe one of these days. Or maybe I just need to actually Google it. Who knows? But uh, I think that's all I have to say about this issue. But before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. We got a couple of letters to discuss. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marvel Voices Legacy. Now, he says, These anthologies are very X-Men Unlimited-ish. More vignettes than stories a lot of the time. Both of the X-related stories were perfectly fine. Of the two, I preferred the Storm story, but that's probably influenced by the fact that she's my favorite X-Men, and I really like Aletha Martinez's art. And yeah, that was kind of the uh, the watchword for the anthologies that we've covered of late. Uh, very X-Men Unlimited-ish. And I think, I can't remember which episode it was, but I think I actually kind of uh, started pushing for the return of X-Men Unlimited, because that's actually something I'd really like to see, uh, which I can't believe I'm saying after... After suffering through, I think, a decade of X-Men Unlimited throughout the, the 90s and early 2000s, and then that, that second run of X-Men Unlimited, which was somehow even worse than the original, I would like to see a return of X-Men Unlimited, if only because... I mean, look at the book we're co- talking about right now. We're talking about Children of the Atom, which I don't think merits, you know, 16 to 20 pages a month. Take eight pages of that, throw it in X-Men Unlimited. Maybe take uh, the Otherworld stuff that we're doing, throw that in X-Men Unlimited. Take X-Corp, throw that in X-Men Unlimited. We can actually get an anthology going of stories that maybe don't need entire books, in my opinion, of course. I don't think X-Corp needs to exist. I don't think Children of the Atom needs to exist. It's all bloat. It's all just inflating this uh, line of books to the point where... Everything feels inconsequential because everything's just so all over the place. But we cancel three or four of these books, launch an X-Men Unlimited, make it $5, make it $6. But you'll be saving us money in the long run, at least us completionists. And we'll be able to get more length out of these stories here. If we're, if we're telling stories in eight-page chunks here, but of course that's you know going to undermine the trade collections. But for an overall reading experience, I think it would be beneficial to have... Some of these stories that can't support, again, in my opinion, their own ongoing or even their own miniseries, present them in this X-Men Unlimited anthology. Just to keep things uh, keep things brief, you know, and uh, I think they won't overstay their welcome. Because, like I said, we're $17 American into Children of the Atom, and I'm not sure I've read $5 worth yet. You know, it's... I don't know. Uh, Damien continues... I do wonder why Domino was chosen for this anthology, as she doesn't really fit the theme of heroes of color. She's black in the Deadpool movies, so maybe they asked the writers to pitch a story about a black character, and they only knew about the movie version. Um, yeah, I think I think you get your no prize from that. I bet you. <laughs> I bet you that's right. I didn't know. 
that uh, that 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 Domino was even in the Deadpool movie. Because right? I mean, that's totally out of my wheelhouse here. But uh, I think I think your argument there is uh, probably spot on. It was probably a writer who has never read a Domino story and saw the Deadpool movie and thought that uh, that was Domino, as far as the comics are concerned. And Marvel was a uh, too polite or, uh, I don't know, too nervous to correct them. So that's that. Uh, Damien continues. On to your discussion about the sales charts. I do still find that interesting, but really the key information is how the books are performing relative to each other. It really doesn't matter if a book goes up or down the rankings, as that can happen without any increase or decrease in sales, as it may just be that DC released more Batman books that month. It would be more interesting to if, say, New Mutants started selling better than Wolverine. And it's true, that's uh, just, unfortunately, the reality of the sales charts right now. We don't have numbers. We don't even have estimates, which really, really sucks. And your point is absolutely spot on here. We don't know. Because, like, if we have cable in March at number 50 and then cable in April at number 85, it might have sold the same amount of copies, but relative to what? I mean, everything else, you know, like you said, DC might have put out 15 new Batman books, which pushed everything else down. It's not a good metric. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's the only metric we have. It's uh, really just uh, the only information that they're willing to give us. Maybe when Marvel goes to Random House or Penguin or wherever the hell they're going, maybe then we'll get some numbers again. Um, I mean, it might it might take it out of the top 300 at Comicron, but... Uh, it might just be its own thing. And if it is its own thing, that's fine. I mean, we can... I'm just as fine talking about the top 50 Marvel books of the month because the Marvel books are really only competing with one another, right? I mean, as far as cancellations are concerned, I mean, if Wolverine starts selling better or worse than uh, Green Lantern, what does Marvel care? <laughs> it really doesn't care. Uh, but if Excalibur starts selling more than Wolverine, they might start to think, like, wow, is this happening, you know? So I am hopeful that eventually we'll get more usable data in our sales charts, because like you pointed out, and like I point out every time we discuss them, all we got are numbers. This is basically taking that one page out of Wizard Magazine back in 1992 and being like, these are the sales, <laughs> and not really knowing what to do with this information. Uh, Damien continues. My main takeaway is that we need more people to buy Marauders and Hellions. I don't want to see these books canceled. I also imagine that there must be a lot of completionists out there buying X-Men and not reading it because it really doesn't deserve to be the best seller most of the time. Agreed. Agreed 100%. Uh, at the bottom of our sales charts are, um, well, we had uh, X-Factor, which is gone. Cable, which is also gone. Excalibur, which <laughs> somehow makes it. And Hellions, which... I think, and I, I mean, I have no insider knowledge here. It's just my, uh, you know, my 30-odd years of reading comics. Uh, I think that Hellions will naturally wrap up, or organically wrap up with Inferno. I think that that's just going to get us to Inferno, and then they will, they will dump it. I hope not, or if they do, I hope they give Zeb Wells something else to do, because he's phenomenal. But uh, I don't think Hellions is long for the world, but I do think it's safe. Until Inferno, because uh, I mean, we got a lot of Maddie Pryor stuff in there that might that might start to percolate, and we got Sinister doing some stuff. Which, after reading the uh, Sinister Secrets in X Men Twenty One, tells me that uh, uh, there might be stuff brewing there that we're going to need to pay attention to. Um, X Men selling the most, yeah, I I think it is. 
I think it has a lot to do with completionism. I think it has a lot to do with people not wanting to not wanting to dive all the way in. You know, if you're going to buy an X-Men book and all you want to do is buy one X-Men book, sadly, it's probably not going to be Marauders you're going to buy. Right? Because if you're the kind of person who's going to read Marauders, you're going to read more than more than Marauders as it pertains to the X-Men. But if you're you know, on the on the fringes of X fandom, or if you're just X curious, then if you're going to dip your toe in, you're probably going to do so with the actual flagship book, the one that says X Men on the cover. I've talked to a handful of people who um, who've asked me what's going on in the X books, and they say that yeah, they buy X Men, they just haven't read it in a little while. You know, and I mean, this is anecdotal to the extreme here because it's been like literally four people who've told me this. So. Really, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge number, not even a not even a small number, actually. But I think you're right, is what I'm trying to uh, trying to say here. I think uh, a lot of folks are buying X Men just because it says X Men. Maybe they're not reading it. Maybe they're flipping through it. Maybe it's just remaining on their order list. Don't know. But I agree. Um, I mean, with the exception of maybe like two or three issues of it, uh, it does not deserve to be the top selling book. But thank you so much for writing in and facilitating my petulant petition <laughs> that uh, X-Men Unlimited should come back. And uh, also for uh, discussing the sales charts here. I never know if that's anything that people want to actually hear. So it's it's nice to get some thoughts on those and uh, to be able to discuss at least at a surface level how these uh, books are doing, at least in comparison to one another. So thank you again, Damien. Uh, next up... We got Andrew talking about Hellions number 12. We're back in the Hellfire Gala here. He says, I'd be surprised if I didn't enjoy an issue of Hellions at this point. I kind of see this as a Hellions version of the Quiet issue. A little break from action plots and just giving us some character work set against the crossover backdrop. Zeb Wells really knows what he's doing with this book, and I really enjoyed this one. I found the Quinan and Betsy Braddock bit in the issue to be Wells putting that whole thing to bed. Quinan says she's come to terms with it, and I believe it. So I expect, at least in this series, that Quinan's story will move forward instead of leaning on revisiting Betsy's occupation of her body. Wells has done a lot of work in moving Quinan forward into an interesting character. Well, I'm not so sure that's true, unfortunately. I mean, not not that Wells hasn't done a great job with Quinan, because he absolutely has. But we uh, have read in that Sinister Secrets in X-Men 21 that... We're probably not done with these two. You know, we have the Shattered Captain and the Sinister Sword, and uh, they're going to keep doing this, I think. Now, uh, Andrew continues. With Alex, I get that they're probably going to be doing more with the Madeline Pryor plot, but I can't help but feel hung up on how they're writing him. Having him feel some kind of concern for Madeline would be fine, but to me it seems like they're just going to ignore everything that was done with him past 1989. They barely acknowledge that he and Lorna were in a long-term relationship, instead having him fixated on Madeline. He can barely speak his mind to Xavier and Magneto, and that behavior ignores the fact that Alex grew into a competent team leader during the 90s and beyond. He would definitely have the confidence to say exactly what he thought about the situation to these two, even if doing so would be out of line. Unfortunately, like Beast, character behavior is just whatever the editorial office wants it to be at this time, and we just have to grit our teeth and bear through it. At this point, I really hope that Madeline does factor into the coming storylines to justify all this. And you're right. You're right. Havoc is a bizarre case in this book. He might be the only character in this book that I'm kind of I'm kind of iffy about. And I mean, we have a lot of theories about why Alex is in this book and is with this team, but I mean, it's 
something's going to happen in order something's going to have to happen in order to pay it off right uh he and lorna i mean i think it's being um it might be underselling it to say they were in a long-term relationship because they've been They've been, like, attached at the hip for basically their entire existence, except for a little smattering here and there. But it does seem very bizarre that they're not really... They're really underplaying that. They're really not... uh, This is all about Alex and Madeline, who, at least relatively speaking, was barely a blip, right? She was around for just a little while. So it's very, very odd here. Having Alex not being able to... uh, Get his thoughts out uh, eloquently to Xavier and Magneto. Bizarre. Bizarre. Uh, Xavier just kind of dismissing him. He's like, hey, here, here are your weirdo friends. Go go talk to them. Leave me alone. It was very strange as well. Uh, I think you're right, though. This is just something we're going to have to kind of just uh, bear down and uh, deal with until we get some answers. And I mean, I got a lot of faith in Zeb Wells. I, I, think, that, uh, I think that whatever he has in mind here, uh, so long as he has... You know, any say in it is going to be satisfying. It, it'll it'll pay this off, and uh, you know, fingers crossed that that is the case. Andrew continues. I think this issue could be described as inconsequential, but since I am a fan of the series, I found it to be a lot of fun, and so far the best issue of the gala. Spoiler: From the few issues I've read beyond this one, this is still the best one to me. I like that Wells has the team just get into some trouble while continuing some of the characters' subplots and ending with a great tease for what's to come. So, until we get some explanation for why Magneto would wear that god-awful pimp suit, make my neck slaps. Well, yeah, let's work backwards here. The pimp suit is absolutely atrocious. It might be, and I mean, this is covering a lot of ground here, it might be the worst Jumbo Carnation abomination at this point, right? It's And, and it's not only bad from an aesthetic uh, standpoint, but from a Magneto standpoint, it, it, there's absolutely no way he'd, he'd dress like a clown. It's... Totally um, undermining the character here. That he, I mean, why not just have him in an actual clown costume? It's not a good look. Not a good look at all here. Uh, having the team get into all sorts of trouble here was great. Um, you know, we, I think we saw it devolving into a food fight, and we kind of sidestepped that. We just had it to where, I mean, this team, we haven't really seen them uh, cohabitate. With the Krakoans, right? They've been kind of off to the side. They're the problematic mutants. They're they're really not they're not cohabitating. They're not socializing. I, I don't know that we even see them besides, you know, Havoc hanging out at the uh, Green Lagoon. Uh, have we seen anybody else from the team hanging out? I'm trying to think here. Maybe Grey Crow got a, got a few drinks there, but usually when they're out, they're together. You know, Havoc gets a pass because you know he can hang out with Cyclops and the gang, but. We don't really get to see the Hellions, uh, in some, hanging out with the uh, the other Krakoans here. So it's neat to get little bits like Wild Child crossing paths with Aurora, right? It's not something we've seen before. And I think it's not something that a lot of people expected to see because a lot of people don't know their history. So the way that was presented was wonderful. Uh, actually, a good use of an info page here, just filling us in in a conversational, casual way about where these characters, uh, where these characters were, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Having Wild Child run into Dakin Dakin was also pretty cool. Um, it was just, it was a good time. It was definitely a good time here. And so far, I, I definitely agree with you that uh, this is my favorite issue of the uh, 
of the Hellfire Gala so far. Um, I'm hoping I'm hoping that it gets beaten by one because I uh, I don't want to think that we peaked so early. But uh, I guess uh, I guess we will find out over the course of the next several episodes. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about one of our favorites here on the show, Hellions, a book that uh, fingers crossed will uh, continue being published well into the future. But that's going to do it for the mailbag today. If you would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, I would love for you to do so. I'm begging you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can call into the X-Labs hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can write in to the old email uh, email address at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join the conversation on Facebook. You just search for 90s X-Men, no hyphens, no spaces, and you will find the X-Lapsed group. And I would love to see you uh, be a part of it and uh, join in on the uh, fun over there. Finally, for all your archival Chris and Reggie comics commentary and the entire X-Lapsed archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available anywhere the internet aggregates noise, so any of your listening devices and applications, you should be able to find us. If you can't, please let me know. But then again, if you can't, you're probably not listening to this, so uh, forget I said anything. Uh, Now, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two, help get these numbers... uh, Back to where they were, I guess uh, It would really, really mean a lot to me And it would really help the show out uh, Now, speaking of really meaning a lot to me It means so much to me That you would continue to allow me to be a part of your day And occupy your ear space every so often So thank you all so, so much And until next time, as always I'll talk to you again real soon See ya Chris, welcome to episode 224 of x Labs, and it's a, it's a pretty good day for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, we are done with the Hellfire Gala for now. 
Second, it's Cable Day. And cable Day is usually a good one. Uh, and third, it's uh, the end of July, and the Phoenix metro area is sitting at about 82 degrees today. And uh, that's pretty nice. And uh, for all of my Phoenician friends who are enjoying this weather, um, you're welcome. I have to assume that this uh, unseasonably cold weather has a lot to do with the fact that this is my first summer with a swimming pool. So, um, you're welcome. But also with the unseasonably cool weather comes, uh, well, flare-up of allergies. So, you know, this uh, 30 to 40 minute episode will probably take the better part of two plus hours to record with all the times I'm going to have to stop and start and clear my throat. So, uh, how about we get into it? This is Cable, Volume 4, Number 11 of 12, August 2021, cover date. The story is called Depression. I think the last issue was called Depression as well. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino. Designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky, cover price $4. Went on sale June 30 of 2021. Now, we open with a uh, mostly blank quote page, and uh, it's Cyclops. He uh, suggests that we know what's about to happen. And he's actually going to say this line to Gene a little bit later on during the issue. Now, the story begins at the hatchery, and the five are there, and they're debating whether or not they ought to resurrect Old Man Cable. Now, of course, we all remember that no dupes are allowed, no clones, no duplicates, even different times, different ages, different uh, dimensions. It's a no-no. And, uh, you know, the last thing the five want to do is tick off the helmet bros. And uh, they're talking about Xavier and Magneto, of course, though I would have preferred to call them the Buckethead bros, but uh, that's just me. Now, Hope is advocating for the resurrection, which, you know, that's no surprise. We should expect that due to her familial relationship with the old man. And she basically says, you know, what are they going to do? What's the worst that can happen to the Five if they go through with this? Because the Five are kind of the key to the whole resurrection thing in the first place, so if they break or bend a rule, it's not like they're going to get chucked in the hole for it, right? Well, turns out that this conversation is being overheard by one of the Buckethead bros, Professor X himself, and so he interjects. We, however, shift scenes up to Summer House, where Scott, Jean, and Nathan are having, well, the same debate. Now, Cyclops does not want the old man back. We've heard over the course of the past few issues, he just doesn't want it. He wants the kid. Jean, however, is sympathetic to Kid Cable's plea. Then, Sophie Cuckoo enters the room to dump little Nate. She, I guess she doesn't want to be romantically involved with a loser who can't even maintain his own monthly ongoing X-book. I mean, what kind of absolute loser would get canceled after only 12 issues? I mean, it's an X-book, for Christ's sakes. Sheesh. Um, now, Sophie actually says that they are breaking up with Cable, so I suppose it's either the royal we or they're back to just being, you know, one of the five in one. Now, once she's gone, uh, the last night of Galador tromps into the house. It's like a old home week here. You'd, you'd almost think that this book was originally meant to run longer than 12 issues, and they're trying to cram as much in as they can. Uh, worth noting that this last night of Galador looks a lot like Rom, uh, with a twist at Darkhawk. Uh, he informs the Summerses that he comes in peace. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Kid Cable, Esme Cuckoo, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Ma- Rachel Summers, Magic, Hope Summers, Deadpool, and Strife. We jump ahead to Stan Lee's favorite time progression, minutes later, and we are at Arbor Magna. And, um, well, Old Man Cable emerges from a gold ball. That, but that, that's it? 
<laughs> we, we he's just back. Um, that feels a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, I thought for sure that Kid Cable was gonna have to like fetch him out of the time stream or something, but no, he's he's just back. Uh, now, as luck would have it, Cerebro backed up the old man right before the extermination miniseries, which, uh, of course, we looked at as the ex Nation uh, series of shows available in the archives. So we've uh, brought back a dupe. So I think uh, maybe Scout and Maddie Pryor might have to uh, get a second look at this point. And I guess, you know, who's to say they won't? Anyway, OMC is back, and Professor X welcomes him. Now, Cable looks around and feels a bit of weird deja vu about being on Krakoa, and I'm not sure if this is a reference to, you know, his having any of the memories of his younger self. He then confirms that his body still has the T.O. virus, which apparently he needs for some reason. Elixir informs him that, yes, he's still infected, so no worries to that end. Now, the old man looks to the kid and tells him, hey, you know, you should have known about what was going to happen here. And Kid Cable's all, yeah, yeah, and then he asks if he knows anything about Strife. And the old man doesn't even bother to answer him, and instead goes over to Hope to give her a hug. Only after that does he fill in his younger self that, yeah, of course he knows where Strife's at. And then he body slides the hell out of there. The kid gets annoyed until moments later he realizes exactly where the old man body slid off to, and so he follows. And, I mean, this uh, timey-wimey stuff is kind of weird, isn't it? Like, memories just pop in and pop out. It's, uh, it's bizarre, and um, I wonder if this means they had to collect, you know, old man Cable's body from Deadpool's uh, pool table. And uh, what about his arm? That arm that was uh, used to send the, the Galadorians to somewhere? I don't know. Let's not worry about that now. And now the Cables, they then arrive at Grey Malkin 2. Now this is a cloaked, salvaged vessel that hovers above the Earth. And uh, the old man chats up his new AI, Belle, who looks a lot like a, like an old World War II pinup girl. I'm not sure if she's a new development or not. Now, as the old man suits up, Belle fills him in on Strife's plan. Now, it turns out... Before Krakoa emerged, Strife had swiped a spellbook from Belasco and was planning on sacrificing mutant babies in order to spark some sort of a demon invasion. So a call back to Inferno. Uh, you know, the, the first Inferno. I, I, maybe we can call it Old Man Inferno, if you will. But then, you know, uh, a snag in Strife's plan. Krakoa happens, and so he had to improvise a little bit. Strife pivoted into trying to insert a cloned version of Cable into Krakoan society, which... I guess kind of explains all the clones that we've been saying? I guess? Maybe? I don't know. Uh, the old man informs the kid that he tracked Strife down to a broke-ass backwater dimension, and it's that red-skied place that we've been seeing the old man trudging through during the end bits of pretty much this entire run to this point. He asks the kid for the light of Galador and tells him to head back home and recruit everyone he can to help out with this mission. Kid Cable sees the old war wagon under a sheet and asks if he can use it, and the old man gives him the okay before body-sliding away to do some recruiting himself. Next thing we know, the old man is chatting up magic. Now, Ilyana isn't immediately keen on throwing in with him until uh, Cable offers her a marker. Now, this tells her that the mission is important and also that the old man's going to owe her a favor down the line, and so she's down with it. Next up, an info page, and it's the history of the War Wagon. It was constructed in 1992, in 2021, there was something called the Summer's War, likely the story that we're currently reading. And I wonder if this is like a callback or a play on the Summer's Rebellion story that 
I can't remember who was going to tell it. Maybe maybe Kelly and Siegel. Maybe it was a maybe it was Claremont post return. But somebody was going to tell the Summers Rebellion story around the turn of the century. I wonder if this is a uh, a sort of kind of callback to that. Something happens in 2023 that's redacted. So maybe that's the uh, the end of this Krakoan era. Maybe I don't know. 1918, the Tunguska Racing Catastrophe, which is a reference to an actual event, but uh, the date's off. Uh, It was 1908 in Russia. It was an explosion of an asteroid or a comet or something in the sky, and uh, this event has been referenced a bunch of times in comics, including having something to do with the Fantastic Four's origin. It had something to do with uh, Reed's Reed's rocket ship. Either the fuel or the makeup of it was, was somehow affected by the Tunguska thing. In 2901, it was impounded by the Time Variance Authority. In 1978, the New York City blackout, which, again, is a year off. It was actually 1977, uh, July 13th and 14th, 1977. And we learn here that the blackout was actually caused by an assault on the Bronx by strife. In 2099, the War Wagon 2 debuts, and I'm not sure if this was actually, you know, a 2099 story that was ever told or one that might be told Sometime down the line. 2015, Secret Wars, which is uh, said to be more of a Deadpool story. So maybe this was Deadpool's Secret, Secret, Secret Wars, or whatever the hell that was called. I don't know. I, I basically hated this entire year of Marvel, so I've probably mentally blocked out most of it. Back to comics and back to the kid. Uh, he's already recruited Domino, and then he nabs Deadpool. Now, Deadpool still wants to be part of X-Force and mentions that he... Uh, he doesn't even have any guest-starring spots coming up, and uh, he's not wrong. And I think, you know, man, I haven't seen anyone want to be accepted so badly by their peers since, well, me, I guess. Back to the old man. He and Magic arrive in that backwater dimension, and the old man drops Magic off to prepare. She asks him if he has plans on sticking around after this, and he does not reply. Next to Summerhouse. The kid arrives to recruit his folks. That last night, a Galador asked for permission to use the light of Galador. The kid informs him that, hey, you know, it's currently in use, but you got next. Uh, the team then heads to Hellfire Bay to attempt to recruit the Cuckoos, and Esme Cuckoo slaps little Nate in the face. So we get a lot of face slapping going on this month, isn't it? Um, it's made pretty clear here that Kid Cable plans on heading back to his dystopian future after taking care of Strife in the present, and uh, nobody's all that happy about it, but everyone's kind of reconciled themselves to the fact that uh, that's kind of his plan at this point. Hope and Rachel then join up, and Deadpool starts gabbing a bit, so Jean puts him to sleep. It's here that Scott asks Jean if she knows what's about to happen, and she puts her head on his shoulder and acknowledges that, uh, yeah, she has a pretty good idea what's happening next. We scene shift to the backwater hellscape, or wherever the hell it is, and Strife has cloned his five remaining babies. Now, if you remember, there were ten. The kid was able to rescue five, but that doesn't matter, because Strife's back up to ten, that you know that he needs to do the thing, and in fairness, Strife isn't even sure it's going to work. He, he's all like, "He's like, well, you know, we need ten, and yeah, this will probably do it." it. It's it's like comically funny that just how inept Strife is being presented here. It's really really cool. Uh, now the old man plants a Krakoan gateway seed to help you know the rest of them come over, and then he launches himself into battle. That's where we leave it to be concluded, I guess. Next episode, we are shifting over to Guardians of the Galaxy for the lead-in to The Last Annihilation. We're going to have the Guardians and Sword. So uh, be there for that.
But for now, let's talk about the penultimate issue of Cable. Well, I wish there was more I could say about this issue other than I liked it. Because, I mean, that's really it. A lot of build-up here for our conclusion, and I, I like the way it played out. Um, we're talking about, you know, books that are trudging to cancellation here of late, right? We just had X-Factor closing out with issue 10. Here we have Cable getting ready to close out with issue 12. And we talk a fair amount about uh, truncation and where X-Factor was not being was not being written, in my opinion, or, you know, from a, an outsider looking in, it wasn't being written to wrap up. You know, this was looked at, and again, this is purely projection on my end here, but uh, it feels like it was being written as a long-running ongoing. You know, a lot of stuff cooking in the background, a lot of stuff that would come come back into play months or a year down the line, planting a lot of seeds. Uh, no, you know, no Krakoan pun intended. Very, very Claremontian. I mean, you've, you'd heard the, you'd hear the stories about, uh, like, Claremont being stumped for what to do on a story, and then he would go to his editor, usually uh, Louise Simonson, who'd be like, okay, well, you mentioned this, you know, 38 issues ago, and we never touched on it, and it's like, bada-bing, bada-boom, we have our story, right? I feel like this was being, uh, X-Factor was being written very much in that way. Whereas Cable feels a little bit more um, organic in that it's ending in 12 issues here. Like, I think there were built-in jump-off points for Cable. And again, I have absolutely no knowledge about what goes on in the comics industry. Just as an outsider looking in, this story feels like it's wrapping up a lot more organically than X-Factor did here. It feels like they were prepared to pull the plug on this one at any given time. Like, if Kid Cable's time was always going to be a couple of years, right? And they knew the old man was eventually going to come back. Of course, he's going to have a finite amount of stories that could be told in the time that we're going to allow him to be on the board. And so, while there are bits of this that feel like they're being rushed, uh, you know, the last night of Galador showing up, um, a lot of the stuff kind of falling into place rather neatly. Um, part of me thinks that the the old man return was going to be something other than what it was, because, boy, talk about an anticlimax, right? It's like we've been building to this concept that there is this old man Cable out there trudging this barren wasteland for 11 issues to this point. So I can't shake the feeling that there was going to be more to it than just like, okay, let's pop him into a gold ball, and uh, and then we've got all our old man back, and hey, it just so happens that, as luck would have it, Professor X had a Cerebro backup ready right before Kid Cable killed Old Man Cable. Which, you know, might work if we find out that the old man knew the kid was coming because time stream magic. <laughs> I don't know. When we mess with the time stream, it's, uh, it's both you know frustrating and wildly convenient. So maybe he knew that the kid was coming to kill him because that's the way it was always going to be. And so he had Xavier back him up right then and there. So that is a possibility. I do wonder if this will have any repercussions on the uh, resurrection of dupes or clones, um, or if this is going to be kept, you know, within a small circle of characters here. If uh, if we have the kid ending next issue by going into his dystopian future, then we don't necessarily have a dupe, right? We've got a short-lived dupe. You know, they were together for an issue and a half, uh, the two cables, but if once the dust settles, we're back to just one, I wonder if that maybe doesn't quite set the precedent that we think it may as it pertains to things like Maddie or uh, Gabby. 
And if it's just the Summers family that knows about this, well, the Summers is the five, Xavier, uh, Deadpool, and Domino, I guess. Uh, if it's just them who know that we had a dupe on the island for a little while, then maybe it stays a secret? I don't know, as long as Havoc doesn't find out, I think we're probably okay. But other than that, it, uh, it's a difficult one to analyze, since it is very much a part one of two. We're putting pieces in play here and uh, getting ready to uh, you know, knock the doors off next time. All I can say is that uh, I had a really, really good time with this issue. Um, not only is it gorgeous, because it's, it's Phil Noto, and that is uh, always a good thing, but... Just such a fun story. It was nice. I can't believe I'm saying it was nice to see Old Man Cable again. Um, I mean, Old Man Cable, uh, I'm, I'm a little hot and cold on, on Cable as a concept and as a character here. I, I came into comics when Cable was like the thing, right? He was, uh, and, and not not Ben Grimm, but, you know, just a big thing in the, in the Marvel Universe here. He was a huge name, one of the uh, most popular characters. And I... Uh, I don't know. I, I thought he was kind of one note back then. Uh, just the you know the big militant guy with the with the weird shaped guns and the cybernetic parts. He was basically proto image comics. You know everything that uh, Rob Liefeld did in Image was like a variation on Cable. So looking back on those old issues uh, that featured Cable, it's like this just feels like you know Image Comics Year Zero. And it wasn't uh, wasn't always my favorite thing in the world. Uh, I think it wasn't until a little bit later on, where they humanized Cable a bit more. Uh, the Joe Casey run is notable. Uh, Robert Weinberg's run was also notable for kind of bringing him down to earth a bit. Uh, there was also the Bachelor Party issue of Uncanny, where he and Scott fought the Executioner, which was another one that really uh, really made me take a, take a shine to Cable, maybe for the first time ever. Um, that was another banger of a quiet issue from... Uh, the master of the quiet issue, Scott Lobdell. So no surprise there that I enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed Cable as uh, the father figure to Hope. I thought that was a really good, uh, really good role for him. So um, it was that that was a, a particularly uh, touching panel, seeing him and Hope embrace again. That was very nice, and it really drove home the idea that uh, for the few years that Old Man Cable's been gone, that uh, he's actually been missing. You know. Him being gone and replaced with his younger self immediately was just like, uh, I don't know, I don't think I felt it very much. Like I said, Cable's not one of my, you know, top five characters or anything, so it was just like, okay, well, this is Cable now. Not a not a huge deal. But it was with him, you know, giving Hope a hug, where it was just like, wow, okay, we were missing this guy. This guy belongs here. And now, uh, with him here, it feels, it feels right. You know, it feels like the way it's supposed to be. It's, I don't know, weird feelings. Weird feelings all around here. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this one uh, this one plays out. Um, I've enjoyed this run outside of the uh, the Exitens issue that was kind of shoehorned into it. This has just been a phenomenal, phenomenal run. A run that was better than it had any right to be. Um, we've all talked about this. When they announced that there was going to be a Cable book as, a, as part of Dawn of X-Wave 2, it was just like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> we have to do this. We need a cable book. And then, boy, Duggan and Noto killed it. Absolutely murdered it. Just a, what a wonderful book. One of the most pleasant surprises of this Hox, Pox, Docs, Rock, Sox, Tox run. Um, and uh, I'm going to miss it. That is for certain. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue here. Um, so let's hop into the mailbag. 
Now let's start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 18. Now Damien says, Did I just enjoy another issue of X-Force? Are we sure that I'm not unwell? I particularly love the art. If we're going to do body horror, I'd rather it was scratchy and obscured rather than lovingly rendered. That's a true statement there. Damien continues, My favorite thing about this storyline is the relationship between Quentin and his cuckoo. Essentially, Benjamin Percy is better at anything that isn't political. He could tell a good story, but he keeps doing stuff that doesn't play to his strengths. That's weird. And yeah, you're right. Um, We've read quite a bit of Percy of late, right? Uh, over the course of these past 200-plus episodes, we've, we've covered our fair share of Percy stuff here. And uh, you're 100% right. Um, there are, uh, I hate using the word brilliant, um, because the internet has destroyed <laughs> that word, but uh, there are flashes of brilliance in his work. Stories where he isn't focused on, you know, evil evil Russian du jour or some sort of a global political stage are usually very good. Things like this issue, things like the Domino and Colossus relationship, even, you know, stuff like uh, Beast being written as a wicked sociopath. These are things that are... They're good, you know? It's good story bits. And if we could have more of that rather than... You know, Percy telling us which volume of the encyclopedia he just opened up so he can drop a fact on us. Or uh, dealing with political intrigue or evil Russians that doesn't go anywhere. Um, I feel like both of his books would be far better off. And I mean, that's an interesting study in and of itself. Um, what, What a writer's strength is compared to what a writer is turning in. I mean, uh, you know, I give uh, Teeny Howard a lot of guff on the show for Excalibur and X-Corp being books that I do not want to read. No matter how we frame those books, they're just not interesting to me. But we've seen, again, I hate using the word brilliance, but we've seen flashes of that in Teeny's work here. The interpersonals, the two-part Warwolf story, um, just little bits of conversation between Rogue and Betsy. Good stuff. Stuff that I would read 20 pages of if they would give it to us and instead we're dealing with this fantasy crap that just doesn't land for me and also political stuff that teeny just doesn't know enough about to write about um you know the the uk stuff is just baffling and, and i mean i'm not a worldly fellow and even i can tell that uh many of the behaviors that we're seeing in excalibur in particular are uh i don't know misguided or just uh plain wrong i don't know but uh the insistence on sticking to that kind of story rather than things that uh, suit a writer's strengths is very, very bizarre. You know, to give Hickman his due, um, he knows what he's good at, right? It's the, the big picture stuff, the, the, the high concept stuff. It's not usually the interpersonal, so that's not what we get from him. And, uh, you know, we usually get what we expect, right? It's never, it's never a disappointment from that end. It may not be the greatest story that we ever read, but... I mean, we, we kind of come to expect what we're, what we're going to get. And fingers crossed, we get, uh, we get more of the good uh, Ben Percy than the evil Russian du jour Ben Percy. But uh, I guess we will see. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing in on that one, Damien. Next up, we got Meal talking about Way of X number three. Meal says, normally, I quite like Way of X. This issue made me feel icky. This is true. I will go plot by point. I will go plot point by plot point. I find Drunk Nightcrawler really funny. Not Judgment Day funny, but funnier than some other things in the X-Books. 
I hope that baby Maggie can be a doting older sister to baby Molly, which is my suggested name. The Lowell Mercury subplot is interesting. In my opinion, what Legion did to them was essentially a mind rape. Like it was uncomfortable to read, though that was the point. Anyway, I hope this clears the way for Mercury and Surge to get together. Because while I love Loa, I just can't see her staying with Mercury after the way that she reacted to Mercury's innermost secrets. If Way of X turns into an Academy X reunion, I would be so happy. And you're right, this was a very, very creepy scene. I don't think it could have worked with any character other than Legion, right? Uh, Legion is... he's pretty twisted, right? hes uh, We find out that he does this simply to uh, evoke that uh, whatever monster it was that popped out of the coital event. Um, that was, you know, the entire plan for him. It was a very uncomfortable scene, and like you, like you stated, it, it was certainly the point. And while it felt very different from what we usually get in a uh, comic, even in, in something like Way of X, which is usually a little bit on the headier side, it still goes, like, right in with the theme of the book. The, you know, the disparity between the individual and the hive mind, right? Um, we have their innermost secrets, the things that they keep to themselves, the things that make them them suddenly known by one another here. They give up a bit of their individuality, a little bit of their own private mind space. And um, we can see just how destructive it can be when there is a hive mind, when nothing is hidden, when nothing is unspoken. And I think that is a bit of a commentary on Krakoa and on things like the the phalanx hive mind that uh, threatens that threatens us during the Powers of X series here, where... There, there are no secrets. There are no things kept back. Everything is just in the ether. And like, uh, like Pixie put it here, good people with ugly thoughts. Everybody has ugly thoughts. And it's the ugly thoughts that we tend to focus on because they're the ones that, uh, that bother us the most. You know, the, the nice thoughts are more universal. I, I like to, I'd like to believe that most people and, and, of course, mutants in the comics are, at their core, good people. You know, good, nice, have uh, similar... I mean, of course, there, there are assholes everywhere, but, uh, you know, just have kindness in their heart, right? But there are those secrets too there's those dark things the things that we don't want people to know that we think about and as much as we try to hide those feelings and emotions um part of that is what makes us us you know that's what makes us different from the next person over and to take that away in this most um intimate of scenes here uh, a very very powerful scene a very powerful scene now, uh, Meal continues. My favorite superhero teams go in order from how much I care. One, whichever team has speed on it <laughs> from Marvel. Two, the Jean Grey school kids. Three, Academy X. And four, the Robins. Now, that's an interesting little experiment on a poll we can take here. Uh, let's, let's talk about our favorite. Let's focus on the younger teams here, right? The kid teams, since that's what uh, Meal shared with us here. I'm... See, if I'm going to rank mine, uh, number one would be, uh, well, it would be a tie. <laughs> um, I, you know, I came into comics in the early 90s, so my new mutants was uh, Generation X. And to me, none of the other kid books have measured up to, uh, to Generation X here. Um, Generation X was very much of its time, 
and it was very much of my time. You know, these were my cohorts. These were my peers in age. And, I mean, the 90s were a different time, right? I mean, you could feel like so much of what made the 90s the 90s and what made my teenage years my teenage years in uh, Generation X from music to pop culture to television to movies, it all feels, it just all feels Generation X-y to me. Plus, I mean, I was living back in New York at the time, and every time I read an issue of Generation X, it felt like it was autumn. You know, it felt like it was fall. Uh, it always seemed like, especially when, when Chris Bocciolo was involved, so many leaves, you know, falling from trees on the ground um, just reminded me of home. It just, uh, I, I can't separate uh, Generation X from my youth. And as such, it'll always be, you know, tops in my books. As far as a Marvel young team is concerned, um, I, I would have to, of course, mention the new Teen Titans, the uh, Wolfman Perez stuff, uh, as a either tied with the with Generation X or as a very very close second. Um, the new Teen Titans is a phenomenal book. If uh, if you haven't read it, it gets my highest recommendation. Uh, definitely track track down some. Uh, some new Teen Titans and, and give it a look because it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. From there, it's kind of a mishmash of young people teams here. Um, you know, the original New Mutants, they do hold a special place in my heart, though I I can't say that I'm nostalgic for it because I wasn't, I wasn't there for it. You know, I totally missed out on that first run of New Mutants. Um, and as for the post-Morrison um, kid teams... I feel like we were too overwhelmed with characters all at once to where I, I had trouble really focusing on a few to care about. It's just like new X-Men Academy X hits, and it's like, here are, you know, 50 new mutants you need to care about. And it's just like, what? <laughs> it's It was just hard for me to kind of get my bearings here. Coming from, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where you'd pepper in a new mutant every now and again, and when you'd launch a team, they'd be like, five or six new mutants that you'd, you know, that you'd learn about and you'd have to pay attention to. But then with Academy X, it was just like, here is an army of uh, new characters that uh, that you all need to know about. The Jean Grey school was a little bit more controlled um, in that regard where, you know, we still got a lot of characters dumped on us at once here, but it uh, wasn't quite as many. It wasn't quite as shocking as... Like, how many teams were there for Academy X? Like, Emma had a team, uh, the New Mutants had their team, Cyclops had a team, the Corsairs or whatever, uh, Iceman had a team. Everybody had a team of, uh, of young mutants gathered around them. It was just way too many. I feel it did so many of them a disservice. Uh, and that's one of Marvel's main problems overall, is just uh, rushing to the finish line instead of, instead of trying to organically introduce concepts and ideas. It's just like... Hey, we had this good idea, so get it done now. No, you know, stop everything and pump into this new direction right away. We'll overwhelm everybody. We'll baffle everybody with all these new characters, all these new status quos, and then when people can't really glom onto it, we'll blame them for it. Anyway, meal continues. Uh, the Nightcrawler Stacy X thing. I love Stacy X now. The thing with the Make More Mutants law is something I don't love. It could be very easily twisted into something that's homophobic and misogynistic, so I'm not a fan. But Prude Nightcrawler is a bit annoying. Mate, in my mind, you're not allowed to judge people for using Trojan condoms while you have screwed your stepsister. Did he really do that? I, I don't remember that at all, but uh, I definitely see it happening. Um, uh, I do like the how the Make More Mutants thing was um, 
questioned by uh, Kyle over in which book was it? Which book was it? Maybe it was X Factor. It might have been X Factor, where Kyle uh, had mentioned to uh, Captain America, I believe. Yes, it was uh, Kyle and Captain America talking because Cap was surprised that Kyle, a human, was living on Krakoa, and he mentioned that it's a little, uh, you know, heteronormative. Which, I mean, can you argue that? Not really. If you're going to make more mutants, you got to procreate. So yes, your your point is very well taken. As for Nightcrawler being something of a prude. I don't know, I kind of appreciated it in the context of this story since he is, he's like, he's a, he's a lost man right now. He is trying to adhere to these laws and uh, even though he's questioning everything, he still has this uh, weird internal responsibility, this intrinsic need to try to do right by what the Quiet Council have put forward here. So, and we talked about like the macro versus the micro where Nightcrawler, I, I believe back in House of X number six or Powers of X number six, whichever one it was where they where they, you know, put the three laws down on paper for the first time, I wanna say it was Nightcrawler who who uh put Make More Mutants forward as a law. I, I think it was him. I think he was the one who suggested it in the first place. Now that said you know, we think about it in the very micro, where it's like, okay, well, we have 15, 20 A-list mutants, right? They're the ones that are going to be seen every single month. And, okay, if one of them gets pregnant, or two of them gets pregnant, that's just a couple new babies. Not a big deal, right? Takes a couple people off the off the playing board for a bit, and they have babies. But there's a quarter of a million mutants on Krakoa. <laughs> so we got to look at it in the macro, where even with the nursery that Stacey X has, um, it seems like not very many babies, right? She says they get about one a week, so let's say 50 a year, with a quarter of a million mutants just uh, having a good old time. It seems like not very many, where there should be more. But at the same time, since they aren't taking care of these babies, there probably shouldn't be more. So Stacy is absolutely right in preaching contraception. Right, it's a uh, it's a sticky subject. Uh, no, no pun intended, of course. Um, <laughs> but that said, I do like Nightcrawler being a little conflicted in this because he's basically going by the book here. You know, he is trying to make more mutants. That's what the uh, that's what the law says, and that's what he is. You know, here to try to do. And also, I mean, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned during the episode that. Uh, the wife and I got married in the Catholic Church, and we had to go to classes about how not to use to use contraception. So uh, it's it's definitely in line with uh, Nightcrawler's faith, which has been an issue, right? He he's a he's a lost man. So I, I think that that worked. Meal continues, and honestly, who thought that an island full of twenty-somethings who are essentially immortal and were told that it's their civilian duty to bang was ever going to work? Another part of these baby mutants getting abandoned is that so many of these mutants have been abandoned themselves, so it's not surprising that they wouldn't be the best parents. And that is an excellent point. That's an excellent point that I don't know that they've shown much of a light on. So many of these mutants have been abandoned by their caretakers. Uh, so many have been booted out of their homes by their parents for, you know, simply for being different. It's a uh, yeah, it's definitely something worth discussing here that Maybe they wouldn't be the best parents. And that's, of course, not to say it's a one-to-one correlation there, right? I mean, I, I don't want to make any blanket statements about uh, 
about how good a parent somebody might be, but, I mean, there's a lot of trauma in these mutants' lives, and uh, that trauma may be residual, and it may result in just uh, maybe not knowing how to show a certain kind of affection. And, I mean, we are on an immortal island here. Um, What are responsibilities now? Are there any responsibilities? So, I mean, we're in a culture without any sort of rules outside of the big three, and it's kind of hard to... um, it's kind of hard to put responsibility onto yourself, right? When when no one else is doing it, it's it's hard to be that disciplined. Even I mean, even if you're not on an immortal island, I think a lot of us uh, in the past year have had uh, a new normal foist upon us, where many of us are suddenly tasked with uh, making our own schedules, right? And uh, when nobody's there to tell you what to do, it's it's somehow harder to do anything. <laughs> so it's a uh, you know, you, you give an inch, you take the mile in as far as uh, assuaging ourselves of uh, certain responsibilities. Now, Mule wraps up with, So until Captain America is a mutant, be mine X-lapsed. And uh, anytime someone mentions a traditional Marvel character as a mutant, I'm always reminded of, uh, of an April Fool's. And I'm sure I've shared this with you all uh, at some point. I think it was 1998 or 1999 on... Um, I mean, this is the prehistoric internet back in the day. Very, very much a Web 1.0 sort of a situation. But I was on an X-Men website, and they had uh, put forward that Marvel was about to announce that Spider-Man was a mutant. And he'd be joining an X-Book, and his books would be folded into the X-Line. And um, like I said, prehistoric internet, I'd never been April fools on the internet at that point. So I'm just like, holy cow. You know, we have uh, we have these Spider-Man books joining the uh, the X books, and uh, I mean to think about that now, it's ridiculous. But let's go back to 1997, 1998, where I mean, in order to sell, a lot of books were being kind of uh, tied into the X-Men, right? Uh, and Spider-Man had just come off the Clone Saga, so things had taken a little bit of a dip. So it would stand to reason that they would do something like that to rehabilitate him. And uh, of course, it was you know it was ultimately an April Fool's gag. Yeah. But I can, you know, never not think about that when someone mentions a a traditional Marvel character being retroactively named a uh, mutant. But thank you so, so much for writing in, Neil. I always look forward to hearing from you. Next up, we got Jesse, and he's talking about House of X number one revisited. Huh. Jesse starts with, I'm writing to you on July 24th with fireworks going off outside my house. For those of you who do not know, and uh, why would they, (laughs) July 24th in my home state of Utah is known as Pioneer Day. It's a state holiday to remember and pay tribute to the Mormon pioneers who trekked across the wilderness after being persecuted and hunted and even murdered to settle in what is now the Salt Lake Valley. This was on July 24th, 1847. It's also the two-year anniversary of another people looking for a new homeland after being persecuted, hunted, and even murdered to settle on the new land of Krakoa. On July 24th, 2019, we got House of X number one, and I thought it would be fun to go back and revisit it. So with pops and booms outside, I read issue one for the first time in two years. The art and script still stand out as being some of the best storytelling in the industry. It was pretty cryptic as to what Krakoa truly was and what the mutant nation can do now. It doesn't explain the resurrection protocols or the laws of Krakoa. It does show us as a comic-loving fandom that the X-Men have created a new status quo. The book starts with a quote from Xavier, and then a man in a silver Pac-Man helmet greets some pod people with our favorite phrase. 
followed by some familiar hands planting flowers in places like Westchester, the Moon, Mars, the Savage Land, and Washington, D.C. I'm guessing that the Washington Gate never gets used because the others come up throughout the past two years of storytelling. We get visiting dignitaries from several countries meeting with Magneto and some of the Emma clones. I would like to see a story involving China since they were excited to recognize Krakoa as a nation. We only ever get to see the conflicting countries in our stories. The info pages were new and strange to us. They served a purpose and were there to explain things and not to be a replacement for a lack of art or bad storytelling or to boast the writer's own self-worth. You see the Krakoan language front and center in these pages. Do we even see it used much anymore? I'll have to look. One of the mysteries that still baffles me is with Karima. She was an X-Man at one time. She fought alongside those whom she is helping to exterminate now. She is now the emotionless sentinel who acts like she had never met an X-Man before. I would like a story about this change of heart, or did I miss something years ago? Karima is also listed as having an unknown affiliation on the Orcus Protocol info page. Did we ever get an answer to this? Maybe there's something more. Now, before I go any further into Jesse's missive here, um, I'm, like, uh, weirdly flashed back to uh, the evening of August 30th or 31st, however many days hath August. Uh, It was the last day of August when um, I was playing around with the idea of doing this uh, 12-episode show that we're currently in, you know, 224 episodes of. uh, And I read... House of X number one for the second time. I read it the first time, probably, boy, it came out, as, uh, as Jesse said, here in July. I probably bought it in October because I, I wasn't planning on doing it. I wasn't planning on buying the Hoxpox stuff. I was just going to buy X-Men. You know, that was going to be my only book. I was going to try to do the thing that uh, healthy and well-adjusted comic fans do and just read something that you're interested in, not try to take on an entire um, label or a brand, right, or a franchise. And, of course, uh, we see how that went. But I had read uh, House of X number one for the first time, probably October of 2019. Didn't care for it because I didn't understand it. And I realized that I had such a long road ahead of me into trying to get, you know, up to date. I didn't know what came before it. I didn't know if there was any lead up to it, if there was any precedent to this new status quo, or if it was just something that was dropped on us. And so I had a lot of questions. So fast forward to the last day of August of 2020, and that's uh, the second time I read it, and probably the first time I read it like in earnest. I had all the other issues that I needed, Um, even, you know, the uncanny stuff that came before it in case I had to, you know, go back to any of that stuff to... uh, to get some context, context clues. So I was ready. I was armed. I was prepped, you know. So that was my first time reading it in earnest, and I was so intimidated. Now, it's it's not often for me. I mean, I have uh, thousands of hours of my voice recorded on the internet right now. And for me to have stage fright is a weird thing. It's an odd sensation. And as I started recording X-Lapsed Episode 1... I felt the butterflies because I thought I was going to do this story such a disservice. And I, and I might have. I mean, uh, that's uh, you guys be the judge of that. But um, I was nervous. <laughs> I was really nervous about getting this wrong and ultimately delivering it wrong. So I had a weird, weird stage fright. <laughs> and uh, to talk about uh, some of Jesse's points here, the info pages. 
um, you know, when they when they were new and when they weren't, as Jesse put it, used as a replacement for art or including a scene or just a writer kind of being up their own butt, um, they were good. They were different for sure. Um, they over-relied on them a little bit, I think. Um, but then again, in a lot of these situations here, it was probably the most expedient way to deliver the information that we were given, right? Things like a schematic of an island or a layout of a government or, uh, you know, just a, a hierarchy in Orcus. It's probably better to do that in an info page rather than having Karima What's-Her-Face or uh, Dr. Gregor be like, okay, well, you know, you're third in command and you're fourth in command and you're, you're eighth in command on Sundays. You know, it, it's better to do it in, a, in an info page or an infographic, I suppose. As far as the Krakoan language is concerned, I I still see it like in the double page spread of roll call and cred and in the coming soon page. I don't know if we see it a whole lot more other than that. I, I like you said, I, I I'd have to go back and look. I'm guessing there's probably some of it. It's I mean it's easy enough to do. Jesse also mentions Karima here and the fact that she was at one point on uh, the X Men. I believe that was during the Mike Carey run, the like the Supernova era, maybe. Or maybe the Milligan run that came before it. No, I think it's on my carry run where she was officially on the team with like Mystique and Sabretooth, and I think Cable was on the team at that point. It was a a pretty fun, pretty fun era. That's what introduced the Children of the Vault, I believe. But uh, it is weird seeing her kind of wiped clean here, you know, um, acting just like a an evil kind of cipher, you know, without any sort of personality or emotion. And I don't know if this is something that. Uh, there was an allusion to in the lead-up to this. I don't know if maybe she was reprogrammed or deprogrammed or mind-wiped or whatever. And I also don't know if there was any kind of uh, resolution on her having that weird affiliation. So one of those things I'll have to either check on or be advised on, or uh, maybe it's still yet to come. Jesse continues, I also missed how Orcus has mining facilities on Mercury, possibly being filled and operated by other Omega Sentinels. Maybe the mutants better put a ring on Saturn if they want to, if they would like that too before someone else comes along. And yeah, that's pretty interesting because uh, I think Orcus has facilities both on Mercury and Venus at this point. And now Araco is on Mars and Earth is in the middle of that. And I think I, that has to be by design. There has to be something coming out, coming out of that at some point in the not too distant future. Jesse continues We get the Fantastic Four being all chummy with Scott, which was nice to see. It's not very often we have other heroes being nice to the X-Men. They also dropped that hint of X-Men plus Fantastic Four as well, and I don't think that's over with. And I agree. I agree. I don't think we've heard the last of that. I think uh, I think we got a little bit of a bait-and-switch here with the Franklin never being a mutant thing. I think there's still a shoe yet to drop on that. Uh, Jesse continues, I could have sworn that Xavier was an Omega-level mutant, but on that info page, it shows that Gene and Quentin, they are the only Omega-level telepaths and no other. I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard or read how Xavier is the most powerful telepath on Earth, but he's not listed here. The man who constantly monitors thousands of thoughts at a time is not as powerful as the killable kid? And that's an excellent point, and I don't know that I even noticed him not being part of that uh, page there. So, uh, yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Jesse continues. Two years ago, I thought to myself, what are they doing? It was so different from the uncanny run that had just ended with so many dead and how dark it was that I couldn't get a grasp on this new direction. 
Over the following few weeks and issues, I couldn't understand if this was still my X-Men, or was this new, and how did it impact the rest of the Marvel 616? And yeah, that's basically how I felt, too. Um, starting it out, it was just like, okay, well, I don't know what we're in the middle of here, but then, you know, my my comic-collecting compulsiveness kind of kicked in. It was just like, wait a minute, what does this mean for everything else? How does this fit in? Is... What's been removed? What's been added? It was a, a hectic time in the uh, in the show, as anybody who uh, may have listened to the first episode or the first collected edition will uh, be able to attest to. I was uh, rather precious about um, about my uh, you know my canon my canonical six one six there. Uh, Jesse continues. Now with so many answers, I'm comfortable with where the X Men are. They look more like villains, or should I say maybe the upper class, than ever before, but we all know that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Will we get answers to so many other mysteries before that inevitable fall? Well, with that, Jubilee is still having a blast in my neighbor's front yard, and I might as well go join them. Happy 24th, and I'll see ya. Now, talk about an awesome email there. Uh, That is so cool to revisit some of the older stuff here, because, uh, I mean, how would we, how would we receive it now? Um... Not something I'd even thought about uh, You know, we do have We don't have all the answers yet, right? We do have more We do know more than we did back then, certainly But uh, I wonder how uh, how we would receive it Going back to uh, revisit the the seminal beats Of uh, the Hox Pox Docs run But thank you so, so much for uh, writing in And uh, giving us that wonderful food for thought here How how would we receive this? You know, knowing what we know now It's a uh, It's an interesting question. If anybody else would like to engage in uh, a little trip down memory lane and let us know, I would love to hear your thoughts. Now, speaking of love to hear your thoughts here, we're going to do something new. We're going into the voicemail box here. Of course, uh, we do have the voicemail hotline here, 623-396-JERK. And uh, we do have two voicemails. One has been sitting there waiting for quite a while, and another one is very new. I finally figured out how to uh, download these things. So I have the audio, and I'm going to pop them in right here. Hi, this is Troy calling from Canada, and I am indeed an X-Lapsed X-Men fan, followed from about um, 146 to uh, just above issue 200 or so. And of course, of course, I think that is the uh, the golden age. Uh, going back, say to uh, you know a uh, little bit farther than that, you know the burn run uh, through back issues and whatever. But I, I think it's the golden age because, um, well, a because I was following it and I was young then, but also because there was just one title um, and Phoenix was dead, dead, dead for the whole darn time. Um, which is both of those things are amazing things. And, and yes, during that period of time, uh, uh, new, uh, new mutants came around. Um, and I don't know if during that, that period of time, uh, or if it was slightly after that X Factor came and, and Jean Grey was revived. I can't exa- don't know exactly when the, in the chronology that happened, but, uh, I don't know. That was awful as far as I was concerned. Um, and, uh, anyway. I uh, just thought I would, you know, leave a message to say that uh, I I am just actually so grateful that I was a fan at that time and that I, I got to understand and value what that time was by going through it. 
And I don't know. I mean, I feel sorry for folks who, who didn't, who never got to experience X-Men when it was the only game in town. There weren't a million books, and when people actually uh, stayed dead, and when there was actually some forward evolution and growth that Claremont was allowed to do, uh, you know, until he had to kind of revert back uh, after a while um, down the line after I'd already left. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that was what it was all about, and, I mean, obviously that kind of thing couldn't continue, um, but um, I am, again, super grateful that I got to experience it um, firsthand, issues off the stands at the time. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, we will never see that the like of that again, and glad I got to see it the uh, first time around and the only time around. Thanks. Thank you so much, Troy. I, I love hearing people's origin stories and where they came from as X-Fans here. It's uh, Reggie and I, you'd always used to say it's like the most kind of trite question you can ask is how you got into the hobby, but it's also like the most interesting because uh, it informs so much of what we feel is uh, is comics, right? It informs us to, as to what the language of the X-Men are. You mentioned uh, where you came in and how... I mean, immediately, that's that's your X-Men. And same same with me. When I came in in the early 90s there, it's hard for me to look at any other era as being as pure, right? Despite the fact that a lot of people who were pure X-Men fans got the hell out of there around uh, 1991. To me, that's as pure as it gets. And it's, uh, it's just so cool to hear people's thoughts on their favorite bits of, uh, of X lore and X history. So thank you so much for calling in, Troy. And uh, please, uh, don't be a stranger. Hey, Chris. This is Mark Jager. I'm not giving you a call because I just had to congratulate you on 2,000 days, straight days of daily content. Uh, Props to you, man. It's pretty amazing. And the great thing about that is uh, we get a daily podcast from you, which I've been enjoying because it's pretty darn funny. I enjoy your humor and also the fact that you have such insight into these stories based on your history of reading uh, X-Men and all the related comic books is pretty great. Now, I have to admit, I'm not reading the X-Books right now, but I appreciate that you're doing it for me through these podcasts. But I am reading along with the Essential X Lapsed in the Marvel Unlimited app, which is uh, which is pretty great because I get to read along, and then you then include the mail and such things that are in the original issues, which you can't get in the Marvel Unlimited app, which is uh, pretty great. So the fact that you're going through all of those X Men issues from the start and you're reading all the current X Men means. I believe you're going to be recording daily podcasts for many years to come. So uh, congratulations to you. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, more content. Um, make mine X-Laps, and I'll see you. Thank you so much, Mark. That uh, that means the world to me here. Uh, and it totally makes my day that you're, uh, you're following along with the Essentials, uh, the Essential episodes here. The Marvel Unlimited app is, boy, I don't know why I waited so long, because it is it is excellent for this sort of a project here. Um, and the, uh, 
I guess the accessibility of these issues, even you know, even the weird ones that we've discussed, like the strange tales issues, the uh, journey into mystery. It's you know stuff that I think you wouldn't really think about following if you're doing an X-Men run. You know, you would just do one through sixty-six and yada yada yada. So. Being able to do all this extra stuff due to the Marvel Unlimited app is wonderful, and I'm so happy that uh, that folks are enjoying it. And yeah, the letters pages are, oh boy, they're so much fun, aren't they? Um, I don't know that those have ever been covered in audio before. I mean, I know the original 66 have been covered probably many, many times and probably far better than I've done it uh, on uh, on podcasts before, but the letters pages are... I think that might be brand new territory for uh, for comics audio. So I'm um, I'm having a blast being able to share those. And uh, you know, thanks to my sources out there who were able to uh, get me those those letters pages. So thank you guys so much. And of course, thank you so much, Mark, for your kind words and your friendship. It really really does mean so much to me. Um, I hope you folks enjoyed the uh, the dip into the voicemail here. Hopefully, it'll inspire more folks to uh, to call in and. And leave me uh, sweet nothings on the uh, on the airwaves here, but we're not done for today. This is of course a Monday episode, and so we have this week in X. So let's take a look at what's going to be on the shelves this Wednesday, as well as what's on that wonderful Marvel Unlimited app today. Let's start with the shelves. Um, now the biggie is Cable Number Twelve, right? And that's a book that nobody but us cares about but will almost certainly be spoiled by those who want the clicks on the social media, so be careful. I know I'm going to try to be careful as best I can. Um, We also have Planet Size X-Men number one, the second printing. Even though there were dozens upon dozens of these at every shop I've been to for the past couple of weeks. So uh, I guess we, we need a second printing of a book that has dozens of copies at every shop in Phoenix. Um, We got Sword number seven, which is going to tie in with... The uh, final or last annihilation with Guardians of the Galaxy. We got Wolverine number 14. We got X Factor number 10, a second printing, which, okay, I'll give you this one. This one did sell out most places I've been. I've actually never seen a copy of it on the shelves yet. So this one, yeah, this one earned its second printing. It's just unfortunate that it earned it the way it did. Um, also on shelves, Reign of X Volume 2, the anthology trade. So uh, that'll that'll wind up being a collected X-Lapse somewhere down the line. And, oddly, we get Giant Size X-Men Tribute to Ween and Cockrum Gallery Edition, which is a hardcover. Um, both versions of Giant Size, so the original Giant Size with the Cockrum art and then the, the tribute art as well. And if uh, you're not familiar with that one, I believe every page was drawn by a different artist. So it was still the uh, the Ween um, script, but uh, every page was drawn by a an A-list artist of uh, of today, and and I mean throughout comics history. And you figure, okay, cool. Uh, what what would you expect to pay for that? Oh, maybe ten bucks. Oh, it's a hardcover. Maybe twenty. No, forty five. Forty five dollars. So if you have an extra fifty bucks burning a hole in your pocket, you can get two of the same story. Maybe there's more stuff, but uh. From what I've seen, that's uh, that's all that's there. <laughs> so, uh, hey, do what you do. Uh, now, next on Unlimited, as I speak, these books are up there. Uh, Sword number five. The biggie, Way of X number one. So I cannot wait to start hearing some more thoughts on Way of X. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful book. And, uh, boy, the more, the more conversation we have about Way of X, the better. We have X-Force number 19. 
and uh, a book we covered here which wasn't so great, uh, Women of Marvel number one. Another anthology, a, uh, boy, a toughie, a toughie to get through, a toughie to read about, I mean, a toughie to write about, a toughie to talk about. I believe that was episode 199 of the show, so if, uh, you know, free is good for women of Marvel. Um, maybe if you read it for free, you won't have such a such a you know bellyache like I did after after paying like six bucks for it. So hopefully that's the case, and hopefully you guys enjoy it more than I did. I guess I will uh, be finding out in the coming days. But that, my friends, is where we will leave it for today. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at Nineties X Men. You could do what Mark and Troy did and give a call to the X-Lapse voicemail hotline, 623-396-JERK. Uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, now well over 2,000 days of daily content. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including some uh, Chris and Reggie total packages, uh, which are... Compilation pieces of our some of our greatest hits over the past five years, celebrating you know five years of our partnership. Right now, uh, there is a twelve-hour Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, total package up there, which, I mean, the joke we would always say is uh, our notes for Crisis on Infinite Earths had more pages than Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> it is quite the deep dive, and it'll keep your uh, ears occupied for half of an entire day, twelve hours or so. So, that sounds like a Good expenditure of time. It's it's there waiting for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Anyway, the Chris and Reggie channel is at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You could find it basically anywhere. So it's uh, there waiting for you anytime you need it. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today. And hey, we broke an hour, which um, always makes me want to apologize. So uh, sorry for taking up an entire hour of your day, but I, I do so very much appreciate it. So thank you all so, so much for allowing me to be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 227 of X-Lapsed. Can you believe it? X-Lapsed is back. I can't because it took forever for this package to get to my house. I can't believe we are over halfway through August and we're just barely starting the July books here. It uh, feels like uh, sometimes these DCBS packages are uh, cursed. Uh, actually, more often than not, uh, this month in particular, it took it took a long time, clearly. Two weeks into the month. It's insane. Anyway, let's kick things off here. We are actually going to be starting this month with a surprise penultimate issue. I wasn't aware that this was going to be the uh, second-to-last issue of this series. Uh, there was a sneaking suspicion, of course, because, uh, I mean, how long could you go with this series, really? But... The book we're going to discuss today is Children of the Atom number 5, and it had a September 2021 cover date. The story is called Reinforcements. Written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Andrews Ballesteros, White Sobolski, cover price 4 bucks, went on sale July 7th of 2021. And as mentioned, this is, of course, the penultimate issue, and it's also the fifth issue, so we are down to our final member of the cast to be our narrator. So we got uh, J.J. Daycrawler. He's going to be the voice in our heads today. Now we open up with some catch-up from last issue. The Coda kids are captured by the U-Men, uh, but J.J. is able to get away. Now his inner monologue is mostly about his stepbrother, Marvel Guy. He talks about not remembering a time in his life when he wasn't around his, uh... His mother married his stepfather, you know, a little bit, uh... He, he was still a, a little kid, so he didn't really know a whole lot of life before that. And, of course, Benny was part of that package, so he was always there. But he talks about how, of late, he seems to be getting on Benny's nerves more and more. He's scared that Benny's just tired of being his big brother. And, uh, I'm not sure I'd necessarily blame him. Okay, but seriously... J.J.'s got to figure out how to save the day here, so that's what we're going to be doing. Now, he nearly makes me do a spit take by, uh, you know, thinking, like, who can I go to for help? And the first thing that pops into his head is, I can go to the Avengers. And then he stops himself with a, ugh, gross comment, which was pretty great. I, I actually uh, really dug that. Now, he realizes that his best bet would ultimately be to go to the Krakoan Embassy and enlist the aid of the X-Men, of course, I believe it was Storm gave them that, uh, like, X-Logo thing as a sort of a communicator or maybe just proof that uh, they are, you know, friends of the Krakowans. So uh, we already saw this happen at the end of the uh, last issue here, right? But uh, in fairness, we didn't see it from JJ's point of view. We do know how, how we're gonna, where we're going to get to. We just don't know exactly how we got there. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters will be Cherub, Marvel Guy... Cyclops Last, Gimmick, and Daycrawler. Info page. Now, this is an info page which kind of gives the big secret of the book away here. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about the secret that has been kept the, on the mystery that we've been building over the course of the last five issues here. We don't have a lot of story to discuss. The story is very, very quick. But we can talk a bit about you know, how you build a story this way, how, how you build an arc and uh, the success of that arc when, I don't know, maybe the destination doesn't live up to the journey, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. But for now, the info page. 
This is a study of the technology and the gear that Dakota kids use here. So this is an explanation on how they do the things they do. First, Cyclops Lass. Of course, she's got the visor. And uh, the visor is a heat beam assumed to be uh, of welding technology in origin. So not a mutant power, right? This is something that works as a tool, as technology. Now, Cherub, he appears to fly via thrusters that only look like wings. They're not actually wings, they just look like them. He also has sonic blasts from a tool that looks like a hand harp. And uh, this is all assumed to be from mobility and demolition technology. Gimmick has gloves with the ability to charge and discharge energy from objects. And this is assumed to be some sort of excavation technology. Marvel Guy has chemically induced psychic suggestion, and uh, this is technology, or science, I guess, believed to have been used to clear animals out of certain areas where they uh, shouldn't be. Finally, Daycrawler. Now, his gear allows him to fold space in order to appear to teleport. Now, the resulting smoke that pops off, you know, the Banff smoke, this is just something that Gimmick, well, gimmicked up with her cosplay doodads to make it look like teleportation. Also, they all have headgear that blocks telepathy. If you remember, they bought those chunks of Magneto's helmet off of uh, eBay or whatever the uh, eBay equivalent is, and I guess uh, I guess Carmen somehow wove this into their gear, which I don't know. I mean, it, it answers a question, right? Um, and it it's facilitated the keeping of the secret for the past four issues. So I guess we don't really have much of a choice. To but to allow it, but is this really all it takes to neutralize some of the most powerful telepaths in the universe? Like Jean Grey, Professor... I mean, we have characters here who should be able to suss this out, and they can't because they have chunks of Magneto's helmet woven into their gear. I I don't know, it seems a little suspect here, but uh, I mean, it did keep the secret, and it did get us to where we are now, so we'll let it be. Back to comics, and we are back to the present. The X-Men and Maggot arrive to fight off the U-Men and save the Coda kids. And, well, they spend the next 11 pages doing just that. <sighs> but it's not just a fight scene. We actually advance our story here as well. Because, you see, the U-Men, they, they use this technology that nullifies mutant powers, and, hey, you know what? It actually has been a minute since we've had mutant power nullifiers in the X-Books. Because for a while, it felt like we saw them in every issue. It feels like it's been a while since we brought them up. So now, why is this important? Why is this worth mentioning? Well, because this mutant power nullifier doesn't affect our Coda kids, because they're not mutants. Huh. It is worth noting that Carmen does feel a bit of a headache, though, so I wonder what that might be about. Anyway, in a bit of a role reversal, the Coda kids are able to come to the depowered X-Men's aid, and together, they win the day. But... Now, the X-Men know that the Codas are dirty, stinking, fake mutants. And, uh, well, they advise them that they're no longer under Krakoan amnesty. And so that pesky Kamala's law now applies to them. And, of course, you know, that's the anti-teen heroes law that we read about in the Outlawed issues. Well, maybe you don't know, since those were some of my least listened to episodes ever, and uh, that is saying something. Anyway, Cyclops politely tells the kids to... uh, Go home. And so the Codas kind of just stand there looking sad. From here, it's an info page, and it's a look at uh, J.J. Daycrawler's social media feed, because, uh, well, we need more 
things like this in the book. Uh, it looks like Cradle are currently looking for the Codas, and uh, I guess word travels fast. Also, the official Krakoa chatter feed sends out a message thanking the Codas for their assistance. Back to comics, and uh, we rejoin the Coda kids a little later on, licking their wounds. Now, Buddy is being patched up by Carmen, and uh, is getting really close to her, like, gazing into her eyes and everything, uh, despite the fact that she doesn't seem to realize that, uh, A, Carmen is a lesbian, and therefore not into Cherub, and also that Carmen has the hot pants for her. Elsewhere, Benny applies some iodine or something to JJ's head, and they have themselves a heart-to-heart. They hug, they're happy, they're brothers, all that good stuff. Cherub is, uh, laying on the floor with a damp towel over his head, I guess, uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's recouping. Now, they talk about how it's probably time for the, uh, the Kota kids to take a little bit of a break. Because Cradle, I mean, that's an organization full of dicks, and the X-Men know that they're not mutants, so it's tough times. They gotta, they gotta maybe take a step back and figure out what the, uh, the next play is, or even if there is a next play. But then, there's a knock at the door. Hmm. Well, they answer it, and it's Storm, all the way from Mars. No, no, actually, this is before all of that. Because, you know, this Coda story certainly couldn't have been told in, like, two or three issues. Because, you see, we needed to stretch it out for a trade collection that nobody's going to buy. Now, Storm is here with an invitation to the Hellfire Gala, which, you know, hasn't happened yet. Now, the Coda kids are shocked. They figured that these invites were just for important people. And Storm gives them a look like, child, please. And then explains that only one of them is actually invited. And that invitee is gimmick. Since, you know, she's actually a mutant. That's where we leave it. We are to be concluded. But next episode, we're looking at Hellions. So let's talk about this issue. And uh, I feel that I should preface. I can't believe I have to, but... uh. I should preface with the fact that uh, I don't hate this book. I don't hate the creative team. Um, I don't want you to hate the book or the creative team on my behalf. But I do feel like there are a few problems in this book. And unfortunately, the problems are kind of my main takeaway. Now, of course, I can't claim to have any insider knowledge on the, uh, you know, the publication of Marvel Comics or uh, actually any of the uh, you know, making the sausage sort of plans here. What we do know is that Children of the Atom was first solicited, like, a year and a half ago. I mean, it was supposed to come out, I think, like, February or March of 2020. So, a long time ago this book was supposed to hit. It was delayed for the better part of a year, maybe a little over a year. And uh, here it is, uh, never solicited as a miniseries or a limited series, and uh, looks like it's going to be wrapping up with its sixth issue. Again, I don't know what goes into these decisions, I don't know if this there was an original plan for this story that had to get altered or amended or just played with in a way that made it fit in with the Reign of X rather than the Dawn of X. So this one's kind of a toughie to really hold things against. You know, it feels like uh, this one was just kind of snake bit from the get-go. I mean, folks who listen to the Collected X Lapsed, the uh, weekend show I put out that collects, you know, all the disparate episodes of the show into kind of blocks that fill out the Dawn of X anthology series. You know, if you haven't listened to the show and you want to get into the show, it's a pretty easy way to do so. It's, you know, all the number ones are there, all the number twos are there from back in the day. It's just basically what appears in the Dawn of X anthologies will will be part of that episode. 
And I recently uh, did an audit episode because it was funny. I'm looking online, and you go to Amazon, you go to Comixology, you go to Marvel.com, you go to the Marvel Wiki, you go to anywhere that sells books, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that sells books to try to find out what's in these Dawn of X anthologies, and none of them seem to be able to agree because, you know, original solicits went out before the COVID hiatus, and then the new solicits came out, and then the actual book came out, and sometimes none of this stuff matched. And I was putting together a recent episode and saw that Children of the Atom Number 1 was supposed to be part of an early, or a mid, mid, mid-range mid uh, Dawn of X anthology trade. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> how does this work? And that was my first indication that, uh-oh, I might be doing this wrong by uh, by going through Amazon or going through Marvel.com to see what's in these books. It got to the point where I actually had to go and take a picture of the back of the trades. I don't own the trades. I have the single issues. But I had to take pictures of the back of the trades just to see what was in the books so I could make sure that I was covering or including the right stuff in each collected edition episode. Now, I only mention that because Children of the Atom were listed in the Dawn of X run, and of course... That just didn't turn out to be. So, while there are some problems with this book, it's really hard for me to hold it against, you know, anybody involved in the creation of this book. Be it the creative team, be it an editorial, it's it's a real tough one. Like I said, this book feels like it was snake bit, but I'm going to ear on the side of optimism here and assume that it's going to serve a purpose. Like, there's a reason why this story is being told here, and... Maybe it comes down to Carmen. Maybe it comes down to Gimmick. Maybe she will be a big part, or maybe just a part, of the uh, of the Reign of X story here. Maybe she'll join the New Mutants. Uh, same writer, right? Vidayala did Children of the Atom, also doing New Mutants. So maybe this Gimmick character will uh, make a bit of a splash here and not be like D-Cell from the Juggernaut miniseries, who is... As far as we know, just there. I don't know if we've seen her since uh, the end of the Juggernaut miniseries, but uh, we have to assume she's still on Krakoa, right? So anyway, on to the problems I had with this issue. Um, Now, the whole thing about this series has been building up the mystery of, like, who are these kids? What are these kids? Are they mutants? Are they inhumans? Are they super-powered at all? Is this all technology? And we get our answer... In an info page I mean, we've been building this up for like a hundred pages Over the course of a long, long time (laughs) I mean, again, it's hard for me to say You know, this book was solicited a year and a half ago And so we've wondered about these characters ever since then But I mean, even just taking it into account That this book has been on our radar In its current form for the better part of the past Eight or nine months now And the entire thing is about building up this mystery And it just kind of falls flat. You know, even the revelation from the X-Men that these characters that have been portraying themselves as mutants aren't mutants is kind of just shrugged off. It's like, oh, you're not mutants? Okay, well, uh, you're no longer under amnesty. Go home. It just feels very, very flat. Also, if we think back over the course of the past several issues here, or I guess the only issues of this book, the big cliffhanger that we got two or three times was... The characters at the Coney Island Gate trying to walk through. Which, I mean, it was silly in the first place, but now it just makes the characters look stupid. Because the whole gimmick of these gates is that only mutants can pass through. 
Now with the understanding that these characters knew they weren't mutants from the get-go, I mean, they were just wearing technology that made them appear to have mutant powers. I don't know why they were on a ship. (laughs) I don't know why we got that flashback. Maybe that'll be cleared up next issue, but... I mean, this just shows them as being very dumb. Why would they try and try and try to walk through a gate that clearly wasn't ever going to let them through? It just seems pointless, and it makes the characters just look very, very dumb. And again, of course, this might have been retroactively made into a six-issue series here. Maybe maybe things got in the, in the way. Maybe the Hellfire Gala gummed up the works. Maybe just things happened because... I'm thinking the only way to pay off that sort of scene where they're all trying over and over again to walk through this gate is to have one of the times they do it have Carmen not wind up on the other side with them. She actually made it to Krakoa, and then we can deal with that. We can have the characters kind of wondering what this means. We can have, you know, Buddy, the top mutant fan person in the planet, being maybe a little bit jealous that uh, that Carmen has the powers that uh, that Buddy wanted. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I feel like, like I said a few times, this was just a snake bit book here. It's not a bad book. Again, I, me- I need to make it clear that I don't hate this book, nor do I hate the people behind it, lest I get a reputation for hating everything. But I just don't feel like this story worked quite as well as it could have. Um, the art here was uh, as good as usual, a bit stylized as, as normal. Uh, if it's something you like, you're going to like it. If it's something you don't, you're not. I happen to like it, and I think it uh, perfectly serves the uh, the tone of the story and the characters involved. But uh, I think that's all I have to say about this penultimate issue. If you agree or disagree, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, don't uh, be afraid of reaching out, even if our opinions don't uh, match up. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. But uh, let's hop into the mailbag first, eh? We've got a handful of letters today. Uh, We are, of course, coming back from our little break, so uh, it gave the mailbox a little bit of time to to pile up. Now let's start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 19. Damien says, I'm sure I'm not the first to um actually you about Malice, but the Sue Storm Malice and the X-Men Malice were completely unconnected. Sue turned evil due to a team-up between the Hatemonger and Psycho Man. She wasn't possessed. I'll be honest, I don't think I read a Malice story since she split with Polaris around about uh, Uncanny X-Men number 250, so they may have been retconned into being connected. And, you know, I think... I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. It's uh, It's been a little while, but I think I actually um actually myself there. <laughs> I think... Did I do a fake-ass comics history on that? Maybe. I, I, I know I, I talk a lot, so maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but I think we did a fake-ass comics history on that. I... Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Maybe I imagined it. Uh, Damien continues. Anyway, this was one of my favorite issues of Excalibur so far. That means it was pretty good, but still a little confusing. Personally, I didn't notice that they skipped the Betsy Quinan fight, but I've seen so many fights between them, mainly in dream sequences over the last year or so, I'm very glad that they skipped this one. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of the trademark of Excalibur here. Uh, We get a cliffhanger, and then we start... In a place that makes us wonder if we uh, missed an issue or two. Uh, Damien continues. It was great to see Malice back. She's a great character to sow distrust among the Krakoans. That original Barry Windsor Smith-drawn story is a high point to aim for. I wonder if Teeny Howard can get anywhere near it. 
No comment. Uh, you talk about getting less feedback as you get closer to being up to date because of how many of us are waiting for Marvel Unlimited, so I feel I should warn you that none of the Conan stuff gets put on Unlimited. This means that the Savage Avengers 2 party will be the first X-Slaps that I listen to without reading the comic first, which is a new experience for me. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. I didn't know that the Conan stuff doesn't wind up on Unlimited. That's very, very interesting. And uh, next episode, we'll actually have Damien's thoughts on the uh, the two-part Savage Avengers story. So uh, look forward to that. And, uh, of course, thank you as always for writing in, Damien. I always look forward to hearing from you. Uh, next up, Evan regarding Sword Number 5. Now he says, you're right that Fabian Cortez is not even getting the hint of the benefit of the doubt that other, more dangerous villains are receiving. Now, if you remember, this is uh, Fabian Cortez kind of on trial in front of the Quiet Council, and, uh, well, he's naked. He's nude the whole time, so it's a kind of an exercise in mocking him and making him, uh, making him look pretty bad <laughs> and just making him very uncomfortable. Evan continues, I think it's probably because he's always primarily been out for himself. While folks like Magneto, Mystique, Exodus, and Apocalypse have been, in theory anyway, fighting for the cause of mutantdom. Less so for Mr. Sinister and Sebastian Shaw, but they're useful. Cortez in the mutant world is pretty much viewed in the same light we fancy him. Now that inconsistency can be annoying if it's just different writers approaching different things differently, but compelling if it's part of the story. Similar to clones not being resurrected unless somebody more important than Havoc cares about them, and or every non-mutant but Juggernaut being allowed to step on Krakoan soil. But despite Cortez being such a scumbum, the lengths to which Magneto goes to humiliate him seem a bit over the top. And I had a hard time with Jean being the one to download his memories and then mock him at his resurrection. That was an Emma Frost moment for sure. And I agree 100%. Um... Now, for folks who didn't read that issue, or it's been a long time since you have, Fabian Cortez was killed uh, during the King in Black story, and he was brought back in a gold ball. And you know how usually it's Professor X doing the download, and there's usually people around to witness this? Well, Fabian didn't get none of that. Professor X didn't even bother to show up. It was just Jean. Jean showed up. And uh, she, you know, Downloads him after he pops out of the gold ball. He asks, you know, are they going to do the thing where they chant mutant at him? And she's like, nah, <laughs> you know, nobody cares enough for uh, poor old Fabian Cortez. Definitely something that should have come out of Emma Frost's mouth. Not not really Jean's, at least in, in my and Evan's opinion. Now, Evan continues. As for Jean's costume, she was wearing like the Jim Lee, Wills Protasio costume, if I'm remembering right. Uh, Evan says, maybe it was meant to invoke for readers or the, in the story the era where Cortez betrayed Magneto. As for her other costume changes, since the Krakoans seem to be rejecting every human notion, maybe they consider their costumes to be their mutant clothes, and putting on the throwback suits is their only option come laundry day. Well, that's certainly a possibility, right? I mean, have we seen, outside of the um, Carnation Abominations during the Hellfire Gala, have we seen the X-Men out of costume yet? Or the characters that would eventually become the X-Men? I mean, have we seen Cyclops in just, like, his his shades and, uh, you know, a shirt? I think even when he doesn't have the head sock on, he still has his X-Men costume on. I'm trying to think, have we seen Jean outside of her, like, go-go dress or her uh, throwbacks? Or her other throwbacks, I should say. I'm not sure that we have. That's an interesting thing to consider here. I'm 
really racking my brain here to see if we have gotten any X-Men in civilian clothes Outside of like the Women of Marvel special where Emma was trying to find something to wear I, th- I think that's the only time I can think about uh, somebody wearing uh, street clothes Maybe Wolverine when he was Patch, but still that's kind of a costume in and of itself Interesting, interesting If anybody can think of a, uh, of a time where we saw them outside of their costumes, please let me know But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Evan Next up, we got Meal, who's continuing their sort of State of the Union on the X-Books here. And today is X-Corp Day. Now, Meal says, Ugh, X-Corp. Imagine how rich we would be if we didn't have to buy what was owed to us. It's a great line, but would have been much better if it was anybody other than Monet saying it. Like, girl, what are you talking about? You've always been rich. Somebody like Danny or Bling, sure, but not Monet. Okay, Bling wouldn't work either. Her parents are basically Marvel Universe's Jay-Z and Beyoncé. And yeah, you know, um, this is what I would call like Mark Miller writing, where it's like you take a character that you want to fit into a wrong-shaped hole, and you do whatever you have to do to to stick them in there. This is the Mark Miller Civil War storytelling, where it's like, hey, I have this story I really want to tell. But it doesn't really work in the context and framework of the Marvel Universe But I really want to tell this story anyway And even though at the time Marvel had several And still continues to have several, you know, alternate dimensions It's like, no, I don't want this to be an ultimate story I don't want this to be a what-if story I want this to really leave a mark on the Marvel Universe Even though it doesn't really work in the Marvel Universe I'm still going to do it anyway because I'm Mark Miller Here, we have uh, characters who have decades of character development, and it's all been just pushed to the side to make sure lines like that work, and to make sure that the story is facilitated and massaged into a way that if you don't have the context clues or the history with these characters, it works, right? If you don't know Monet or Warren or, you know, anybody involved in the book, it's like, okay, this is a story that's okay. It's when you think about how it just doesn't really jive That's when you start to, uh, I feel like that's where you're putting on like the Roddy Piper glasses and they live, right? It's like you see a crack, you put on the glasses and it's like, wait a minute, none of this actually works And again, I I don't hate the creative team of that book So um, let's not get it twisted here Meal continues Okay, ten hours later, Meal here So... I was going to try and read all three issues that are out as of today, June 27th, to give you my overview on the series. But I can't. It's bad. I hate the art. I hate the dialogue. I hate the data pages, which I usually like. I don't want to hate Teeny Howard's writing, but I just can't. So until Warren gets rescued to a better book, be my next lapsed. And yeah, I mostly agree. I haven't read the third issue yet. That'll be coming up in... A little over a week, I believe But uh, the first two issues have been some of the most difficult To uh, not only read, but to spend hours and hours writing about And and discussing here on the air Contrary to um, some opinions out there I don't do this to crap on books or to crap on writers I do this because I love the X-Men I love these characters Um, So it's hard when we get a book like this that I just don't like And... I'm always open to having my mind changed, is the thing here. Um, 
You know what? I was going to save this for the end of the show, but let's let's get it out of the way now because I've been kind of hemming and hawing about it the entire episode to this point. Uh, for folks who follow the Essential X Lapse, which is our look at the Silver Age stuff here, I did mention this a few weeks ago, but I understand that there are different audiences for different shows here. Um, some folks don't have any interest in the Silver Age stuff, and some folks don't have any interest in the current day stuff. So there are there are different audiences uh, with with some overlap, of course, but. I mentioned during the essential uh, stint we just had that I received a review on iTunes that was a uh, one-star review, and it called me out on being pessimistic, hating everything, crapping on everything, basically wasting my time to crap on things that I don't like. Which makes me think that this person probably listened to an episode wherein I discussed X-Corp, or maybe Excalibur, which are really, in my opinion, the only books that I have a a negative reaction to. I mean, I will point out problems with books because I'm not beholden to Marvel or DC. I'm not beholden to these creators. I'm not getting stuff for free. I don't need Teeny Howard to retweet me and pat me on the head like a good dog. I, I don't need any of that. I believe in sharing my honest opinion. If, if folks are going to spend the time to listen to me, to listen to me babble on with my marble-mouthed way, I owe them honesty, and I'm going to always be honest, and I'm going to be as fair as possible. If you've been listening for any length of time, you'll know that I usually preface my complaints with, hey, this might just be a Chris problem, you know, because I understand I have biases. I understand that I come into comics from a different era than, you know, than is current year. I know that my view of the X-Men is a certain way, and while I can definitely appreciate being challenged you know, by these stories that are going in, in you know, relatively drastic directions here. I mean, this Krakoan era is totally different from what I came in on. And for the most part, I really like it. There are a couple of books I don't care for, and uh, unfortunately they're both written by the same person. So it may seem like I am uh, unduly unfair to this creator, and uh, that's never my intent. I, I, that's not why I do this. I'm going to level with you all here. Uh, this is this show is almost a year old, and throughout this year, I've probably spent close to 1,000 hours, or maybe even over 1,000 hours, just submerged in this world. Every episode that goes up has anywhere between three to six hours of work behind it. So, um... To be accused of using this as a sort of vanity project to crap on things I don't like, it's, it's insulting. It's insulting, and uh, it hurts. It really does, because I feel like I put a lot of heart and passion into this. But most importantly, honesty. I'm not going to lie. The book we discussed today, Children of the Atom, don't hate it. Don't hate the writer of it. I enjoy their work on uh, New Mutants quite a bit, as we've discussed many times. I feel like Vida Ayala rescued the New Mutants, breathed new life into that book. Children of the Atom, however, not my cup of tea. I can appreciate it for what it is, but I'm still going to point out what I find to be wrong with it. I feel like I owe you that much. If you're going to listen, you're going to get my honest opinion. I'm not going to say, 10 out of 10, please retweet me. Please, please come on the show for an interview so I can blow sunshine up your skirt. That's not what I do here. There are shows that do that, and you're welcome to listen to those. Uh, you can listen to them and me. It's, you know, it's, it's not an either-or sort of situation here. But let me do whatever I can here to kind of tie this tangent off here so we can move on with the rest of the show. 
This is an appeal for dissent. I, I did an appeal for dissent during the Essentials episode here. Basically, if you find that I'm being too harsh on a book or on a creator, and if you take issue with that, do me the kindness of calling me out. I list so many different ways to get a hold of me. And good, bad, or indifferent, I read every piece of mail that comes in here. So I've had people take me to task. I've had people tell me that they really enjoy the show. You're all going to get equal time on the show. So if you have a problem with something I might say about X-Corp, please do me the kindness and reach out and say, hey, I think you're wrong and this is why. Not that you'll convince me or I'll convince you, but we'll have a discussion. And that's kind of the whole point of this show. I mean, if you're listening this long, you'll know that this is not a... I don't know, this is not a polished show. This is very much a, you know, punk rock garage band sort of show here, where I'm just some goofball with a microphone who's sharing my opinion, looking for discussions. Whether we agree or disagree, I'm, I'm all for it. So if you disagree, if you take issue with something I say, please reach out. Rather than running to a review aggregate and leaving an anonymous uh, bad review that will only serve to hurt the project that I've invested so many hours into. It's not an exaggeration when I say that I wake up hours and hours before the day really begins so I can do this. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a conscious thing that I do. So to, so to try to do me harm and try to hurt the visibility of the show, rather than just reaching out, I mean, there are things I could say about that, but uh, I, will, uh, I will not. <laughs> um, but this is basically just me inviting discourse, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, that's what the show's all about. It's all about discussion. This is a fake-ass book club. You know, it's not something that's important. It's not something that's going to change anybody's lives or minds. But uh, it's something that I have poured a lot of myself into. And if uh, you listen for a while, you'll know that there are books that I completely changed my mind on. I can point to uh, the big two here. Uh, X-Factor number two was a book that I absolutely despised, and I was actually worrying that I wouldn't be able to continue reviewing the book. And then the book won me over, and I really, really loved it, and uh, I miss it very, very much. Another one is Sword. I went into that thing wanting to hate it because I don't like the way Al Ewing conducts himself online. I wanted to hate it, and I was very honest about that. I, I let my bias show. It's like, I don't want to like this book. And I do like the book. I think it's a very good book. So it's all about honesty and integrity. And I mean, who knows? Exca the next issue of Excalibur might totally win me over. The next issue of X-Corp might win me over. I'm open to that possibility because I'm open to giving you all my honest reaction. So I think I've talked that subject to death here. Um, I want to thank uh, Meal for writing in about X-Corp and kind of facilitating that little aside there and for making me feel like I'm not so insane for not enjoying that book. Now, we're going to keep on X-Corp here by uh, checking in with our friend Andrew, who's still working his way through the Hellfire Gala here. Today he's going to be talking about X-Corp number two and Way of X number three. Andrew says, I gotta be honest, I didn't hate X-Corp number two. I didn't enjoy reading it, but when you expect something to be trash and it's a little better than that, well, it's a somewhat pleasant surprise. I don't understand why this series is a thing, and I won't be reading any more of it. 
Now, of course, Andrew uh, doesn't usually follow all the books, but uh, went in, went all in on the Hellfire Gala here. So this is his first experience with uh, X Corp, at least first first hand experience with X Corp, and uh, really didn't rock his socks. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Now uh, Andrew continues. Now on to a better book. Way of X benefits from cheating and not really being a Hellfire Gala issue, but still using the big party to take a look at another facet of Krakoan society. Sex. It's great that this series is all about pointing out the realities of this supposed utopia. The need for the orphanage being one of those things I never thought about, but makes total sense. Well, if we don't think too hard about how, about how long it's been in-universe and the standard nine-month pregnancy time. It still highlights the need for stronger social mores to really tie the mutants together if they truly want to have a society. I like that Kurt is still learning that he's going to have to leave some of his biases and prejudices behind if he's going to help bring mutant society forward. Kurt has to grow in order for Krakoa to grow, and that's just good storytelling. Agreed one million percent. This is uh, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and the I love how you pointed that out here. Kurt has to grow. Krakoa has to grow. It's it, everything is learning. Um, we know that starting a nation is more than just you know state putting a flag in the ground and being like, okay, this is our nation. You know, there's more to it than that. But up to this point, that's basically all we've gotten. You know, we've got the mutants just they're just there, right? They've just taken over this uh, this island. They start this kitty government and uh, just expect everyone to acknowledge them. Well, there's more to it than that. Uh, now, Way of X has been phenomenal in just these very nuanced ways of looking at what it means to be a society. I mean, you think about the word society, and there there's a micro and a macro to it. On the macro, it's just a group of people, your environment, your city, your town, your your civilization. But on the micro, there's there's a lot of different things that weave us together as a society. Things like, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, rituals. Things like holidays. Things like uh, traditions, cultures. It's it's what makes a society a society. And it's uh, the exploration of that here through the eyes of Nightcrawler here, who, I mean, he's probably the best character to do this because he does have a an entrenchment in uh, organized religion, which is, you know, a lot of traditions, a lot of cultures. Uh, it's very societal. And he has his biases here, as as uh, Andrew mentioned. Seeing the babies, seeing, uh, you know, a, a cat house, <laughs> a brothel, finding Stacey X handing out prophylactics. I mean, those are things that uh, make you challenge your point of view. And, I, and I've mentioned, you know, I got married in the Catholic Church, and I actually had to attend classes on how to not use protection. <laughs> you know, that was a real thing. So we have Kurt, who he's in this like weird middle point between being unflinchingly rigid and the need to be very malleable in his beliefs, right? He knows that, okay, law number three is make more mutants. And you see that as a very rigid and firm law, right? But then you see the other side of it. It's like, well, wait a minute. If there are a quarter of a million mutants just banging all the time, what's going to happen to all these babies? And then you see the orphanage, and you realize that there's a reality to it that is, it's inconvenient, right? It's an inconvenient reality, but it's a reality all the same. 
So Kurt has to he has to stay true to himself, but also accept these changes, accept the things that are true. You can believe in concepts, things that you can't actually touch, but you also have to allow for the realities that you can touch. And it's it's a very and I want to give uh, Simon Spurrier some just a, a heap of credit here. He's doing this in a way that doesn't, you know, poo-poo religion, right? Um, because religion is important to a lot of people. And I think the go-to in comics is to just crap all over it. You know, almost like I do on all of these books, right? Uh, no, no, I'm kidding. But this is treating it with a lot more respect than I was expecting. And it's uh, tackling the... Uh, the more subtle parts of it, the challenges that a uh, that a character might have put in front of them uh, when dealing with these sort of thoughts, and it's just it's just so incredibly well done. As Andrew points out here, it's just good storytelling, and, and I mean, I just spent five minutes basically saying that. Andrew continues, the Legion plot is also good, but I couldn't help shake the feeling that Legion might not be a hundred percent trustworthy. I think Legion is such a unique and powerful individual that a lot of the concerns others might have are beneath him, and that'll probably put his interests against Kurtz or the Krakoans. I think giving him a prominent place in this series was a smart decision, because I, for one, really want to know where his story's gonna go. And once again, I completely agree. Uh, Legion is definitely a character that uh, Spurrier seems to have an interest in, and uh, has never really done him wrong. I I think uh, the Spurrier Legion has been just... A lot of fun, uh, very interesting, and I love the point you brought out here that, uh, you know, Legion, his his needs, his wants, his goals might be, like, well above Krakoa here, and we've seen him in action here. We saw him, you know, basically do the, the psychic banging between uh, Loa and uh, Mercury. Now, whose best interest was that in? Right? It certainly wasn't in their best interest since they came out of it hating each other and being disgusted <laughs> by one another. But it did make that beastie pop out, which uh, was Legion's goal. So, um, yes, I'm very interested in seeing how this shakes out. Uh, the next issue has the, the cover of uh, the next issue of Way of X has Legion and Professor X kind of being separated by Nightcrawler. And I tell you, I cannot wait to see what that's all about. I think that's going to be another goodie. Now, Andrew wraps up with, It was nice reading Way of X because I was starting to forget what reading comics I actually enjoy was like. <laughs> so, until we learn why Onslaught is looking like an owl-headed scarecrow, make mine X lapsed. You see, that's just another one of the reasons why I love doing this show. You get honest opinions from people. We don't have to love everything, and we don't have to hate everything. We can like what we like and uh, maybe not care so much for the things we don't care so much for. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Andrew. I'm, I'm enjoying your uh, your Hellfire Gala thoughts here, and I look forward to more. Finally, we're going to wrap up with Billy D, who's talking about Pride of the X-Lapsed. Now, during our break, I did take a Sunday to uh, finally, finally read Pride—not uh, read, watch— <laughs> the X-Men Pride of the X-Men special from uh, 1989, the animation special. It had been my uh, secret shame for a little while that I hadn't ever watched it. Um... It was one of those things when, where, like, when people would talk about it, I would kind of just like nod my head. It's like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I never watched it. And I finally did so, and I did an episode about it. And I, you know, as, as is the way, um, I enjoyed a lot of it. I had some problems with some of it. But uh, I, overall, I think it was a, uh, 
a value-added thing for me. It was nice to check it off my list. It was uh, it was fun to experience it. And uh, Billy writes in to say, Hey, Chris, I think I caught this on TV after school one day. At the time, I thought it was awesome. Looking back, I still think it's pretty good, but as you said, some of the voices were not up to snuff. Glad to hear you watch this one, as every X-Fan needs to check this one off their list if they haven't already seen it. And I agree, if you haven't seen uh, the Pride of the X-Men yet, uh, I would definitely recommend checking it out. It might be on Disney+. Plus. Might be. I don't know. I found it on um, Utubie, so uh, it's there <laughs> if anybody wants to see it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not half bad. It's very, very um, fun. And I, it's one of those things that I just wish I saw back in the long ago, because... Seeing it now, we have all that hindsight, right? And we've seen the X-Men animated before many, many times. So I do wonder how novel it was to see it for the very first time. But anyway, definitely highly recommended. And hey, if you want someone to uh, watch along with you, that episode's there in the archives waiting for you. But that will do it for the mailbag. And, uh, well, we're not done. We're certainly not done. We got uh, quite a bit more to do here. Uh, This is the first episode of the August run, so uh, let's hop into Marvel Previews. Now, this is Marvel Free Previews number 13, July 4, September 2021, shipping. The cover is Inferno number 1, which uh, we will be talking about. The back cover is Amazing Spider-Man number 74, Finale. And uh, I took these notes a while ago. (laughs) I did the Marvel Previews bit of this. Probably the end of July, so I didn't know anything about what was coming after this, so I put a note here saying, are we relaunching again? Really? And uh, no, Amazing Spider-Man is in fact not relaunching, which is a good news, bad news sort of situation here. Um, Good news or bad news is that now I'm going to have to buy Spider-Man again. (laughs) I'm not a fan of Nick Spencer, so I didn't read any of his Amazing Spider-Man run. But with issue 75... Well, one of our favorites has taken over. Zeb Wells. Zeb Wells on Spider-Man, could you imagine? I mean, that is... Boy, I remember reading Zeb Wells on, uh, I think it was Peter Parker, back around the turn of the century, maybe 2002, 2003, and I loved it. And, uh, boy, having him on the flagship ASM? Well, hell, (laughs) I'm all about it. Um, It will be shipping three times a month, which... That's a little spendy, but uh, I will... For, for Wells, I will definitely, definitely give it a try. Now let's crack this thing open here. We got Dark Ages number one. That is by Tom Taylor and Ivan Coelho, $5. Now the X-Men are included in the blurb here, but I think this is an alternate dimension thing. That's uh, what I've been told on uh, in the Facebook group by folks who are a little bit more in tune with the uh, goings-on in the biz. So uh, we probably will not be uh, covering it here on the show. Uh, Worth noting, there are a few pages of black and white interior art included in this preview, and they are gorgeous. Of the X stuff, we do see a page with Apocalypse on it, so uh, we will have to see if this is uh, 616 or if this is something we don't need to worry about. Uh, If anybody knows, please reach out and let me know, and uh, if it's something we have to cover or should cover, we will indeed cover it. Speaking of things we will indeed cover, Inferno, number one of four. Jonathan Hickman and Valerio Shidi, $6. The headline is, The culmination of Jonathan Hickman's X-Men begins here. Our blurb is, There will be an island. Not the first, but the last. Promises were made and broken. The rulers of Krakoa have been playing a dangerous game with a dangerous woman, and they're about to see how badly that can burn them. 
One woman follows through on her promise to burn the nation of Krakoa to the ground. And I mean, as we've been saying, this looks like it's going... And I hate using the word epic, because I feel like it's been totally devalued in this internet era, but this looks like it is going to be most epic, and definitely a turning point in the run, and uh, I cannot wait. This is going to be... is going to be good, I think. Next up, we have The Darkhold Alpha, number one. Now, this is Steve Orlando and Cian Tormi, uh, $5. We won't be covering this one, but I just wanted to mention how the newly dead Scarlet Witch is being advertised as being a big part of this. Um, will this undermine the trial of Magneto? Is anybody paying attention? I don't know. Just like with Dark Ages, if this is something we need to cover on the show, please let me know and we will, in fact, do that. Another thing we probably won't be covering on the show, Demon Day's Cursed Web, number one. Peach Momoko, $5. And it looks like Sabretooth is getting involved at this point. Again, this has nothing to do with the current run of X-Men books. It's just included here for completionism's sake. Next, X-Men The Onslaught Revelation, number one. Cy Spurrier, Bob Quinn, $5. Headline reads, You have strayed from the way of X. The onslaught is upon you. The blurb. The X-Men's greatest foe, Mutantkind's primal evil, slithers in the minds of its most senior leaders. The kids whisper of the Crucible, a party to end all parties, a party to end everything. The seals are broken, the trumpets have sounded, only a small band of eccentric mutants can hope to break the fall. Can Nightcrawler spark the light that will drive out the shadows, or will Krakoa slip into the abyss? And the cover here depicts Xavier being taken over by Onslaught. Now here's a dichotomy. Of course I really want to read this, but it's looking more and more like this is probably going to be the end of the Way of X series. Now the rumors are that uh, this series is going to be wrapping up with this one shot, though I desperately hope they're wrong, but I don't think they are. Um, I love the idea of a crucible. You know, playing and merging and melding the concept of the crucible with the Hellfire Gala. I mean, Onslaught's all about, like, a merging of two different things, right? Xavier and Magneto, the Crucible and a Gala. I mean, it's going to be good. <laughs> it's going to be good. I can't wait for it. It's just, uh, I hope after this there's more X stuff in uh, Spurrier and Quinn's future. Right? Because they, uh, it's just been so much fun. Next up. X-Men The Trial of Magneto, number two of five. Leah Williams, Lurk- Luke, Lurkus, no, Lucas Wernick, $5. Headline reads, Habeas Corpses, which is clever. The blurb is, heroes of the Marvel Universe came to Krakoa for a memorial. Now they've got a fight. Magneto pushes Krakoa and the Council to the brink. Also, there's something wrong with the body. Hmm. Uh, well, the cover has Magneto, like, wasting the Avengers, which is a good and bad thing, in my opinion, because it's always nice to see the Avengers get smashed. But that also means we're going to have to read a story with the Avengers in it. And those don't usually end well for the X-Men, do they? Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to this one. I've got my theories about how this one might shake out, and I wonder how they're going to work this one. If anybody out there has some theories about this, I would love to hear from you and share them on the show as well. I don't want to say mine. I don't want to... Accidentally influence anybody But uh, I've got thoughts Next up And this is a maybe for us a Deadpool Black, White, and Blood Number 2 of 4 By a whole lot of folks for $5 The headline reads Wait, what? They're letting us do another one? The blurb is Did they not read the last one? 
That one was wild for sure, but this one, hoo boy. I mean, look at those credits. You think this one's going to be less gonzo? I think I'm going to need to buy our lawyer a nice fruit basket or something. And I'll be grabbing this one regardless. Maybe not for the show. We'll see what the stories are about. I know the first issue, which I just received uh, the other day, it does have a Scout story in it. And uh, Scout is dressed the way she is on Krakoa, so I'm thinking that it's a more current day, not exactly current day, but a more current day story that we will be doing a uh, show on here. There's also an Omega Red story in there, which I'm not sure when that was supposed to happen. If it... uh, If it seems relevant, we will uh, cover it on the show as well. Next up, X-Force 23, Ben Percy, Martin Cocolo, $4. Headline reads, Mightier Than the Sword. The blurb, Beast's best laid plans invite a threat close to the heart, as the secret works of Mikhail are at last revealed. A key issue that will precipitate... Boy, easy for me to say. I've been talking a long time today. A key issue... That will precipitate a dire change for Krakoa. To which I feel like I have to say I'm very tired of all of these solicitations promising big changes for Krakoa. I mean, for a place that's advertised as having these huge changes three to four times every single month, very little actually does. It, can we can we maybe lay off the hyperbole in our solicits? And again, I don't hate Ben Percy, Martin Krakoa, or X Force. So. Uh, just uh, maybe dial it back with the hyperbole. I am definitely happy we're finally getting back to Mikhail. Uh, the cover looks like he's jamming the Cerebro Sword, if you remember that, <laughs> into Beast's head. Now, the Cerebro Sword, I don't think we've seen that since uh, X-Force number... I think it originated in X-Force number 2 or 3. I assumed it was going to have something to do with the uh, Exitens event. And it was stolen right before Exitens by Mikhail. So it's been missing for quite a while. Next up, New Mutants 21. Vida Ayala, Alex Lins, $4. Headline reads, Mayhem on the Moon. The blurb, there's something creeping in the shadows of the Summer House, and the new mutants are about to come face-to-face with it. And back on Earth, the team is turning against itself as they gear up for their biggest battle yet. It's space stuff. Um, Hopefully the Earth stuff more than makes up for it. I am tired of the space stuff, big time. X-Men number three. Jerry Duggan, Pepe Larraz, $4. The headline reads, Evolution is the enemy. Blurb, the X-Men are no strangers to being targeted for their genes, but when the High Evolutionary returns with his brand of unnatural selection, the survival of the whole planet is at stake. Well, I'm not much of a High Evolutionary fan, but it's Duggan, so I am optimistic. Marauders number 24. Again, Jerry Duggan with Z. Carlos, $4. The headline reads... Space Pirates. Again? Um, Now, the Marauders have hit the highest seas of all when they point their bow to the stars. But what threat awaits them, and why has it sworn vengeance? It's more space stuff. Okay. Excalibur 23, Teeny Howard, Marcus Toe, $4. The Call of Doom is our headline. As Guardians of the Gate, Excalibur is sworn to safely escort those who quest to the other world within but their duties are tested to their limits when Doom returns to Avalon. And it's Otherworld. Enough said, I guess. Uh, Rogue was very lucky to have gotten out of this book. Uh, Sword number eight. Al Ewing and... I don't know how to pronounce this person's first name here. Giyu? Giyu Villanova. Four dollars. Long live the queen. By the time you're reading this, you know. You know who sits in the central seat of Arako. 
you know who speaks for soul. Storm rules. But when you have to prove to your people who you are every single day without fail, what becomes of who you were? My main takeaway here is, wait a minute, an issue of sword that isn't tied into a crossover event? Do they even make those? <laughs> and uh, I'm down. I'm down for this one. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing sword when it's not being forcibly tied into some sort of mass crossover event. Uh, next up, X-Corp number five. Teeny Howard, Alberto Fochi, four dollars. Hostile takeover is our headline. Uh, it's impossible to succeed in business without making a few enemies. Noblesse Pharmaceuticals sends their most cutthroat team against X-Corp once and for all, and they've come to collect. Uh, did that last sentence make any sense to anybody else? Um, anyway, it's a, this is a surefire 10 out of 10, and I can't wait for it. Hellions number 15. And uh, this is my monthly reminder that, yay, Hellions hasn't been canceled yet. Uh, Zeb Wells, Rose Antonio, $4. Headline is Sinister Secrets. Psylocke's secret deal with Mr. Sinister will cause a schism within the Hellions. Also, Tarn the Uncaring wants his stuff back. And I mean, it's Hellions. Enough said. It's going to be good. <laughs> I can't wait. Wolverine number 16. Ben Percy, Adam Cubit, $4. The Solemn Truth. The game is nearly over, but when Solemn is involved, that's just an excuse to change the rules. Did you figure out the mystery before Wolverine? And I mean, it's Wolverine versus Solemn. We've enjoyed that, and it's not vampires. And we enjoy things that aren't vampires, so... I think this will be a goodie, and Adam Cubit's back on R2, which is always a good thing. X-Men Legends number 7, Larry Hammer, Billy Tan, $4. Wolverine, Jubilee, Hammer. Eh? <laughs> not, not really looking forward to it. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy number 18, maybe we'll cover this one. It's wrapping up The Last Annihilation. I will grab it just in case Sword or Cable are involved. Part of me wonders what's going to happen with Cable in this. Uh, hey, maybe he'll join the Guardians or something. I, who knows? Who even knows? But uh, we will definitely keep that one on our pull list just in case it needs to be covered here on the program. Now, with all the singles out of the way, let's head into collected editions here. We got Reign of X, Volume 4, which includes Wolverine number 10, Excalibur number 17, X-Factor 6, Cable 8, and Children of the Atom number 1. 152 pages, $18. Cable by Jerry Duggan, Volume 2. This one includes Cable 7 through 12, 160 pages, also $18. And I think that's it, because everything else here is listed as October and Beyond. So this is into the far-flung future. And we have X-Men Omnibus, Volume 2. And this includes X-Men 32 through 66, Avengers 53, Kazar 2 and 3, Marvel Tales number 30, and Not Brand Ech number 4 and 8. 920 pages, $125. Hellions by Zeb Wells, Volume 1, Hardcover. Hellions 1 through 4 and 7 through 12, 288 pages for $40. Wolverine by Percy, Volume 1, Hardcover. It's Wolverine 1 through 5 and then 8 through 12, 328 pages, also $40. X-Corp by Teeny Howard, Volume 1. Volume 1? That sounds like a threat. I mean, I mean, a threat of a really good time. This one includes X-Corp 1 through 5. 144 pages, 18 bucks you'll never get back, nor will you want them back, because this is a 10 out of 10. Children of the Atom by Ayala, Volume 1. Now, this is Children of the Atom 1 through 6, and that bit from Marvel's Voices that we covered back in the day. 
184 pages, $18. Reign of X, Volume 5, includes Excalibur 18 and 19, Sword 2 and 3, and King and Black Marauders, 152 pages, $18. Reign of X, Volume 6, Sword Number 4, X-Men 18 and 19, Marauders 18 and 19, and X-Force 17, 160 pages, also 18 bucks. Way of X by Spurrier, Volume 1. Way of X, numbers 1 through 5. No mention of the Onslaught story. 144 pages, 16 bucks. The X-Men Epic Collection, Volume 8, I, Magneto. This one includes Uncanny X-Men issues 144 through 153 in Annual Number 5. Avengers Annual Number 10, that biggie with uh, the first appearance of Rogue. Bizarre Adventures Number 27, and Marvel Fanfare 1 through 4. It's 480 pages, $40. Next, X-Men Avengers Onslaught Omnibus. Really? Now that was an Avengers story now? Come on. Uh, Cable, 32 through 36. Uncanny X-Men, 333 through 337. X-Force, 55, 57, and 58. X-Men, 15 through 19. X-Men Volume 2, 53 through 57 in the 1996 annual. X-Men Unlimited 11. Onslaught X-Men. Onslaught Marvel Universe. Onslaught Epilogue. Avengers 401, 402, so that's why they get co-billing here. They have two issues in the book. Uh, Fantastic Four, 415 and 416. Incredible Hulk, 444, 445. Wolverine, 104, 105. X-Factor, 125, 126. Amazing Spider-Man, 415. Green Goblin, number 12. Spider-Man, number 72. Iron Man, 332. Punisher, 11. Thor, 502. X-Men, Road to Onslaught. And Excalibur number 100 Now this is 1,296 pages for $125 Next up we have the X-Men Omnibus Volume 1 Which is X-Men issues 1 through 31 from back in the long ago 224 pages, 40 bucks If uh, you're looking for a show to uh, help you through those issues I hear there's, uh, there's one on this very channel Finally, X-Men Legends Volume 1, The Missing Links this is X-Men Legends, issues 1 through 6, 136 pages, $18. And, uh, well, that's it. <laughs> that's everything. I think we are done here today. Uh, boy, it's one broken hour, so sorry about that. But uh, let's, let's close this one out here. If uh, anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Laps voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And I definitely want to uh, shout out the members of that group here for uh, being very, very cool and very, very supportive when I got that uh, very poor review. Um, folks don't know how close I came to just shutting everything down at that point. Uh, not that I can't take criticism, but this felt like, a, uh, felt like an attack rather than um, a criticism. And when you devote basically every minute of your free time to a project and you hear something like that, you kind of just don't want to do it anymore. So big, huge thanks to the uh, the Facebook group at 90s X-Men for just being some of the coolest folks out there. Finally, for the complete archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available anywhere that the internet aggregates noise. And uh, as much as I hate to ask, but if there's anyone out there who has any nice things to say about the show and maybe a few moments of time, uh, maybe help your old buddy, old pal out. I would uh, really, really appreciate it.
But uh, with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to reside in your ear for an extended period of time today. I would also like to thank everyone for their patience for how long it took for the main show to come back. The realities of shipping are, uh, sometimes they're really, really good, and sometimes they're just not. And this was one of the cases where it was not. So thank you all so much for your kindness, for your patience, and for joining me. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode 236 of X-Lapsed, and it is a, uh, a most solemn occasion today uh, because we get to say goodbye to a book that I feel surprised a lot of us. I think when this book was announced and when we you know, started reading this book, there were certain expectations, perhaps a little trepidation, um, that this was going to be... Well, this was going to be just like its namesake, right? This was going to be a cable series just like... All the other cable series, which, yeah, they had their highs, but uh, they mostly had lows, at least in my humble opinion. But uh, this one surprised us. And today, for better or for worse, we say goodbye to Cable Volume 4, with its 12th issue, cover dated September 2021. Stories called Shakespeare in the Zack. Okay. Written by Jerry Duggan, Art Phil Noto, Letters VCs Joe Caramagna, Designs Tom Muller, Head of X, for now, Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolsky, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale July 28 of 2021. And before we get into the actual issue here, I just want to beg your indulgence once again. The, uh, the allergies are hitting me rather hard today, so uh, if any of this episode sounds disjointed, it's a... Uh, well, it's because it is. <laughs> I'm having to... I mean, I'm like a minute and a half into it right now, and I've already had to stop the recording two or three times to clear my throat or make some other noise that I don't think anybody would want in their ear uh, during a uh, podcast recording. So uh, uh, just begging your indulgence here, and we will do our best, as we always do. So, we open with a mostly blank quote page, wherein Cable relieves Cable of his duties. 
And uh, we saw this get said back in Extermination, which we covered as part of the x Nation Sunday special series, which is available in the archives. And uh, it's funny, it's uh, the first time I'm realizing that outside of, uh, what was it, X-Force Volume 5, that 10-issue series that came out pre-Hoxpox, we've basically covered Kid Cable's entire life here on the show, between Extermination and uh, everything post-Hoxpox. There wasn't all that much more, so maybe one of these days we'll cover that X-Force series and have the the complete Kid Cable uh, story told via my rambling voice. So, double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters include Cable, and it's a picture of Kid Cable, by the way. We don't have two Cable boxes on uh, this page. Esme Cuckoo, Emma Frost, Cyclops, Jean Grey, Rachel Summers, Hope Summers, Deadpool, and Strife. Now into the comics, we got Old Man Cable and Strife exchanging blows. Of note, Strife, uh, yeah, he, he's very cocky here. He thinks he has the upper hand. He truly does think he's going to win this. And he suggests perhaps keeping the old man alive until Krakoa burns. Hmm, so maybe he's got some uh, knowledge of what's to come, maybe. Hmm. Now a demon, who kind of looks like the external cruel, comes up behind OMC, but is sniped by the kid before he can do anything. Now Strife, you know, you'd figure he might be a bit dis- perturbed at seeing both cables, but no, no, quite the opposite. He's downright giddy at seeing Kid Cable because he figures this will be his opportunity to kill both cables. Now Cyclops, who is with the kid, blasts Strife in the face, cracking his helmet around his glowing left eye. And then the war wagon rolls in. On it, we got Rachel, Hope, and Esme blasting away. Jean is standing there, um, probably doing something psychic-y. Domino is driving, and Deadpool is yucking it up, comparing Strife to Shredder from uh, the Ninja Turtles. Now, Esme is annoyed by the fact that she's using a gun, considering it to be too human and therefore beneath her. And so she decides to hop out of the wagon and just step up to Strife. Now, Deadpool warns Connie against it, uh, you know, Deadpool's never been able to keep his cuckoos straight, which is pretty funny. I I, kind of giggled there. Uh, He also suggests that what she's doing is basically suicide. Well, she goes ahead anyway, steps to Strife, and proceeds to read his mind. Now, what she sees is, well, basically a quick and dirty look at how Cable and Strife are always fighting. It doesn't matter the time nor place, there will always be a Cable, and there'll always be a Strife. And in these battles, sometimes Cable wins, sometimes Strife wins which kind of makes their relationship feel a little futile, doesn't it? But I think that is kind of the point. While Esme reels with this new knowledge, the kid charges in, but he's swatted away by Strife. The old man then rushes in, and he and Strife struggle a bit with their blades. Off to the side, Esme tends to little Nate, telling him that, uh, well, she understands everything now. She gets why he has to do the things that he has to do. She hates it, but she gets it. Kid Cable tells her that uh, yeah, he never he never understood why she stuck around with him, you know, uh, he, and he even figures that it was just to tick off Emma, you know. Esme says that's always fun to rile up the White Queen, but that's not why they got together. You see, at first, the cuckoos were kind of set up with Cable by Scott, Jean, and Emma to ensure that the kid wasn't actually Strife. Now, it didn't take Esme long to figure out that he was just, you know, dumb old Kid Cable, but by that point, well... She liked him. At this point, they kiss, uh, but with the understanding that uh, theirs is a love that can't ever be. Well, we'll hold that thought for a bit. 
Then Nate rushes back into the fracas, and Esme cries. Jean consoles her and prepares her to help the, uh, the fellas with their final rush here. And so, we go back to the killing fields. The Cables, along with the, some psychic assistance from Jean and Esme, manage to defeat Strife. Now the Nates point their blasters at Strife, who appears to be, I don't know, maybe like 40 years old or so. Um, what I mean to say is his hair isn't completely white, uh, he has like that X-Man white streak, like in the very front of his hair, kind of like Kid Cable does, except without the, uh, you know, without the shaved sides and stuff. And uh, Strife's face doesn't appear uh, quite as rough as it was when he debuted, and uh, that's not a knock on Liefeld's art. Well, not an intentional one, anyway. What I mean to say is he looks younger. Kid Cable then asks Strife if he has any last words, and, uh, well, he sure does. You see, Strife requests amnesty. After all, Krakoa is for all mutants, right? Well, I suppose we could get into the logistics of clones and duplicates on Krakoa again, but it's a pretty moot point in this situation. Because you see, both cables claim that their ears are ringing too badly to hear what the baddie is actually saying, and so they, uh, well, they, they blast the hell out of him. They, they murderize him. Strife is, uh, is dead. Now off to the side, the demons, now with their, without their pointy-helmeted leader, they've got a few parting words for our heroes, and uh, those parting words are, Praise Satan, let's go home, which is pretty great. Uh, Deadpool is standing by, and he's worried that he's going to have to... He's going to be the one who's stuck collecting Strife's body and suggest that perhaps a shop vac might be of use. Meanwhile, the cables talk about how this Strife was just one Strife out of the picture. There are many, 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 many strifes. And so they're going to have to deal with their dupe on multiple fronts. Now, this is basically the old man telling the kid that the kid is going to have to go back to the future. Now, this might speak some more to the futility of uh, Cable's very existence, but we'll get into more of that uh, after we're done with the synopsis. From here, we get into, I guess, sort of a wrap-up, maybe half wrap-up, half epilogue in a way. And we shift to an unnamed planet for some of that wrap-up. Here we've got Old Man Cable and that last Galadorian, remember him? Uh, they're tying up the loose end of the Space Knights. Now Cable, I think, uses the essence of the Light of Galador sword on the Space Knight, who perishes but then also kicks off the beginning of a new techno-organic race, I think. Um, what we see here is like orbs digging into the ground, and then a Space Knight-flavored flower blooms, like a techno-flower blooms out of this unnamed planet. And that's kind of what I'm trying to say here. Now, perhaps we are literally planting seeds for future stories, or maybe Marvel's just lying in wait, maybe to get the rights to Rom back? I mean, who knows at this point. From here, we go back to Krakoa, and the kid and Esme share their last night and morning together. Before Cable body slides away, Esme takes his beaded necklace which will be important in just a moment. Then we head to the moon. Kid Cable says goodbye to his family. As he leaves, Wolverine enters with a six-pack of beer. Now, if you remember, Logan owed Cable a marker from their battle in the quarry back in issue one. Well, Kid Cable's calling in that marker so Logan can uh, help the summer zizzizzes get through this. Now, worth noting, the kid tells the fam that they'll be able to find him if they need him. So, uh, why does he have to leave permanently then? I mean, if he can just bebop through time, couldn't he just, like, come home and sleep in his own bed every night between Strife Wars? Uh, time travel is a toughie. It's, uh, 
things like this that make the uh, pages in my original Squadron Supreme trade paperback switch positions, if, uh, if folks get that reference there. Anyway, Kid Cable arrives at the old man's space station from here, where he is literally rearmed, like he has a new arm put on with the Bell AI in it. Now, uh, he's got questions, though. Now, he's not ready to go just yet. And, I mean, he's been following along with the Hawks, Pox, Docs, Socks, Rocks era, so I could totally understand him wanting to get some answers. I know we want some. Unfortunately, Cable ain't keen on spilling those beans, which, huh, does that mean that he knows about Inferno? And, uh, by extension, does that mean he knows about Mora? Is his presence on Krakoa going to be problematic? Huh, interesting. Anyway... The old man, he doesn't, he's not going to give any news, but he does have some advice. And the advice is basically fight for the things you want. We flash back to the future. It's old man Cable, who is probably the aged kid Cable, who... I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of confused here. I'm, I'm struggling with this time travel stuff. Whatever the case, now he's readying himself to head back to the past to undo something his stupid younger self did. And we can see that he's living with Esme Cuckoo who is helpfully still wearing that beaded necklace she took from the kid a few pages ago, so we know that it is, in fact, her. Back to the present. The cables say their farewells. The old man keeps the light of Galador, which I suppose may or may not still have some Galadorian juice in it. Now, he says he's going to keep it here, meaning that the old man is now once again our cable. He body slides to the sword station for his last annihilation one-shot, and the kid body slides into the distant future where he and the Bell AI charge into their decades-long battle with Strife and his hordes. We wrap up this issue, this series, this volume back in, uh, presumably a, uh, less evil area of New Jersey, where we, uh, we find Stinger and Omerta. They've gotten their baby back. Hey, you, you remember? That's kind of what kicked off this whole series. Only, you know, where they had one baby taken, now they've got two. Because if you remember, Strife had to clone the five stolen tots to make ten because Kid Cable stole back the other five. You know, he, was, he had ten, he needed ten. Kid Cable was able to rescue five, so Strife was left with five, needed ten, so he just cloned the babies. Now the issue closes with the revelation that the clone baby has a glowing left eye. Well, well, well. Well, that's where we leave it. Next episode, we kick off two episodes of uh, Last Annihilation with the Guardians of the Galaxy. But uh, we'll get into that next time. For now, well, let's wrap up this volume. So let's talk about this as, um, like, the second half of a series here. Let's look at the X of Tens Till Now run, because I feel like that is a, uh, a story unto itself here. Whereas, I mean, the whole volume is certainly a story for uh, Kid Cable and sort of his coming of age. I feel like it really started to kick in around the time of X of Swords because, uh, well, that's when we started to see this formerly cocky kid start to question his own abilities and, uh, and efficacy in that he started uh, maybe seeing some weakness in himself. We saw it during the fight with uh, Bay the Blood Moon where he kind of didn't pull the trigger because he... Caught a glance of Doug Ramsey, Bay's husband, in his peripheral vision and realized that he just couldn't go through with uh, putting her down. And uh, perhaps that's a sign of softening, a sign of weakness, but also an opportunity for him to maybe sympathize with the old man cable version in that uh, 
maybe the rules aren't quite as rigid when you take into account uh, the feelings and experiences of, of people and people that you care about. He couldn't kill Bay the Blood Moon because he didn't want to hurt Doug. And instead, I mean, Bay turned it around and nearly killed him. And uh, in the words of Saturnine, it didn't, you know, physically kill him, but killed his spirit. And that was kind of the genesis of Kid Cable wanting to bring the old man back, uh, perhaps realizing that the old man maybe had his head screwed on a little bit better than he had thought here uh, back during the extermination days. I found that to be quite the maturation of Kid Cable here. I mean, this whole volume has been like a coming of age for him, which I tell you what, I never ever expected when we started this volume. And I mean, I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll probably wind up saying it again because I am very, very repetitive. But all I knew of this character uh, when we went into this volume was what I saw in uh, the Hickman X-Men volume, which made Kid Cable look like kind of a chuckle-headed schmuck, and uh, what we saw in Fallen Angels, which was this really gloomy, dark, angsty kid, and I wasn't a fan of either take. So going into the volume here... I kind of expected like a militaristic approach here, like the original mission statement for Cable, where, you know, Cable showed up in New Mutants, thought they were a little too passive, and uh, started X-Force as the proactive X-Team, you know? And it's been said before, they were the team that wouldn't wait for the, for the danger to come to their doorstep. They'd go out and take care of it before it became a problem. Which was the mission statement and lasted for about 10 minutes before they became just another X team. But, uh, but that's kind of what I thought we'd be getting out of this volume. And I uh, couldn't be happier that I was wrong because uh, this was a very fun story. And uh, it's a testament to the creative team that they can take a character so far removed from relatable reality... And give him so many relatable traits here. And, uh, I mean, this is to Duggan and Noto, because together, I mean, they made magic here. Uh, Cable as a naive, somewhat naive, somewhat innocent, mistake-making character. It was just so well done here. And then Noto being able to bring this far more complicated character than I expected to read to life the way he did. This was, this was fun, and I'm, I'm definitely going to miss it. Which is something I, again, I didn't think I would ever say. When this book was announced, it was kind of an eye-roll moment for me. You know, because it was just like, a, well, of course, we're going to get a Cable series. Because it's an X-Men uh, family of books, and yeah, we're going to get a Cable book. Hopefully it won't last long. <laughs> it was my first thoughts, and uh, well, it, it didn't, which is unfortunate. But uh, overall, it was certainly, at least to me, a net positive. Uh, he reminds me a lot... Of, and I think I've made this comparison before on the air, but the new 52 Superman, who was, when you compared him to the pre-Flashpoint Superman, a bit immature, a little brash, you know, a little bit more hot-headed, and for the longest time was a character that I just could not glom onto. I, I was not a fan of this take on the character until he was about to die. We got to jump all the way to the end of the new 52 in DC YOU era to... The lead-up to Rebirth, where I started to appreciate this uh, younger, brasher Superman, and uh, and came around to the uh, idea that while he wasn't my Superman, he was still worthy of the name and of the title. And then you know, then he went away, and that's kind of how I feel about Kid Cable. Where uh, when we met him, I was like, "Well, this, this kid ain't for me," you know. He was different, 
But as we started peeling back the layers and finding out that he actually had layers, uh, he became a character that I really, really dug, and I'm going to miss him. And of course, that isn't to say that I'm upset that we have the old man back, because, I mean, the old man, I I would never say I'm a cable guy, but uh, the old man is my cable. You know, coming from where I come from in the fandom, uh, Cable was old. (laughs) You know, he was always an old man. And uh, there is, I have to admit, a level of comfort in having him back because, you know, this this era of X-Books is kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? And it's designed to be that way. It's so different from what we've had before. That it's kind of a any old port in the storm sort of a situation here We we recognize the old man Cable as perhaps a touchstone in our fandom Or a touchstone to a yester era that we fondly remember And it's uh, there is a level of comfort in having him back here Now, uh, one of the watchwords that's been coming up in our books that have been coming to an end Is uh, truncation That's something we talked about a lot during X-Factor, which was heavily, heavily truncated in the last issue and a half of its run there, half of issue 9 and all of issue 10. Felt very, very rushed, and of course that's no fault to the creative team here. They had that cancellation dropped upon them from uh, out of nowhere. So, you know, you do the best you can to tell the stories you feel like you need to tell before turning the lights out and closing the door one last time. And uh, yeah, that, that does lead to truncated stories. In Cable, we don't really have that. There really isn't much of a feeling of truncation here. This came together more or less organically. There's not a whole lot of feeling of uh, rushing and and bustling uh, toward the latter half of this series. Outside of the Galadorian, I feel like with the way the last Galadorian just, like, showed up last issue while everything was going to hell, uh, that... Maybe that was a loose end that needed to be tied off before the, uh, the volume came to a close, but... Other than that, I feel like it came together. I mean, it's really just one big story here. We have Strife, we have the babies, we have Kid Cable coming of age, and uh, the old man coming back, and the status quo, at least insofar as who is Cable, uh, restored to the way that it uh, that it was pre-extermination. Now let's talk about this as, you know, a single final issue, uh, of which I think it was a very successful final issue. We got to take care of the big conflict of the volume, And we got several epilogues, which hint at future storylines here. The only thing I kind of question is the wonky time travel uh, logistics, where the kid's like, well, if you need me, you know where to find me. Then why are we having these, you know, sappy goodbyes? (laughs) Why do you have to leave necessarily if you could just pop back every, every once in a while if you're needed? I don't know. You guys know me. There hasn't been a time travel story yet that hasn't bamboozled me, and, uh, it's not like a space story or a uh, Savage Land story where I don't like it. I do like time travel, I just don't understand it. And it's hard to analyze. And uh, I feel like time travel and fiction can be a very contentious subject where some people like the Grunewald laws, some people don't like the Grunewald laws and feel like they just overcomplicate things. Uh, some people like it where, you know, the original five can bebop around time and return to just being themselves. It's a. Uh, it's a toughie. I guess that's a uh, mileage may vary sort of thing. Um, and for the most part, I did enjoy it. I just uh, don't want to be put on the spot and ask why, because I really can't explain it. Overall, I still recommend uh, checking out this Cable series if you haven't checked it out before. I'm guessing there's probably going to be a uh, you know a trade paperback or a hardcover of the entire series, maybe leaving out the X of Tens chapters, but uh, 
For everything else, I'm sure there's going to be a collected edition. I know there's already a collected edition for the first half of it. So it's definitely out there. It's definitely worth your time. And uh, if you are trepidatious about dipping into a cable series, I'd say that you're probably safer than you think. So uh, maybe give a dip your toe in, give it a shot. But that's all I have to say about the issue for now. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here. And, uh, well, we're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about... X-Corp number one. And I tell you what, I've been looking forward to hearing Damien's thoughts on this one. Now, Damien says, I cannot recall a time in my fandom when a new book has been released and I haven't seen a single positive comment online about it. Different people have different tastes, and you expect even the things that you think are trash to be loved by someone else, and, of course, vice versa. There are people who think Excalibur is the best book being released by Marvel, and just yesterday I saw a tweet declaring that Way of X was the worst X book. There's no accounting for taste. But everyone seems to hate X-Corp. I tell you what, that's both vindicating and surprising. You see, full disclosure, I don't read other people's opinions, uh, because I'm always afraid that I'm going to subconsciously, I don't know, make them my own or try to pass them off as my own. So I steer far away from other people's thoughts on the books. But I did look at the review aggregate websites, where they, you know, aggregate the scores that people give. And uh, the odd thing about X-Corp is that it doesn't look any different from any other book, at least insofar as scores are concerned. There's still the same amount of 10 out of 10 reviews as there are any other big two book that, uh, you know, people want to impress the creator by giving a good score. So... I just assumed that this book was, you know, same as it ever was, right? Uh, Especially since right after I reviewed it, I got my own one out of five star review on iTunes because I'm so damn negative. I just assumed mine was a minority opinion and I was getting some clapback from someone who wanted to uh, stand up for a writer who probably wouldn't spit on them if they were on fire. So I tell you, this is uh, fairly vindicating to hear that, uh, well, there are other people out there who will review things honestly, you know. Um, Damien continues. It is terrible. A load of meaningless corporate speak laid over some terrible characterization. Monet is an awful person in this story. She's manipulative, self-centered, and nasty. This is not the M I know. She was never nasty or cruel, just impatient and irritated by others' incompetence. I thought X-Force was doing a number on Beast, but this book seems to be trying to make Monet into a villain. And hey, have I told you guys my thoughts on Beast? And okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that again. Um, you're right. You're right. Monet is absolutely awful in this book. Her characterization reminds me of uh, how people used to talk about uh, female wrestlers, probably about within the past ten years or so, where rather than getting actual storylines and real like organic feuds and you know just stories, you know why why are these two people fighting each other? Why did this person turn on this person? Why is this person now bad when they were good for, you know, two weeks and they were bad before that? And I remember hearing from the, like, the wrestling news sites that the only characterization they were giving the, uh, the female performers was that women are mean to one another. <laughs> women don't like one another. And that was the entire basis for the women's division. Alliances didn't matter. Experiences didn't matter. Backstories didn't matter. It was just women are mean. And that's the story. And that's what I feel when I'm reading Monet here. It's just like, where did she? Where did her character go? She's just mean girl now? Not to mention that if we were looking at this strictly as like a job performance review for Monet as a CXO of X-Corp, 
she sucks. She should be gone. <laughs> she should have been fired a long time ago. Uh, Damien continues, The other characters are no better drawn, and the art is the weakest we've seen in the Hox, Pox, Dox, Rock, Sox, Nox, Fox, Locks era. And I agree. It's almost as though I have to like anthropomorphize a two-dimensional drawing here and think that Warren is actually trying to appear decent in this book in spite of the way everything is being written. It's like I'm giving him his own personality here outside of uh, the writer's pen here. It's it's not good. Um, as for the art, I, I didn't hate it. Uh, I think the art, if we could say that there was a bright spot to the issue, it would probably be the art... And of course the cover, which you're gonna you're gonna mention in just a bit here. But uh, I didn't mind the art, and you know, for me, I don't like talking about the art all that much because uh, you know there's so much subjective about it. So something has to be either phenomenally good or phenomenally bad for me to to comment on it either way. And I didn't find this to be either. It was fairly inoffensive, and uh, you know, it worked fine. Maybe you know, sort of afterthoughty kind of art, which you know goes right back to my this should be a five-page chapter in an X-Men Unlimited book rather than its own hopefully not ongoing series. Damien continues, How did this get the go-ahead to be published? It makes fallen angels look like Watchmen. Surely even David Aha covers can't rescue this. You can't polish a turd. Baffling. And yeah, I, I don't know what the thinking is behind this uh, series. I have looked at the Marvel previews and it doesn't I mean they're either skipping a month or this book is going to end with the fifth issue uh, fingers crossed it's ending with the fifth issue I'm guessing that there's going to be like one thing that we're going to take from this story that will add to the lore of the Hoxpox Rockstock Sox era but unfortunately we you know need to spend $20 or $21 before tax on bafflingly frustrating story and characterization to get there like with Fallen Angels, we did get the uh, the bit about Quanon's daughter. I think we even got like one takeaway from the Empire four-part cash-in with uh, something having to do with controlling the Krakoan gates. I think we did get a takeaway there that added to the, you know, the main overarching Krakoan story. So maybe that's the case here. I guess we can only wait and see. But thank you so much for writing in on uh, that uh, <laughs> a challenging issue of X-Corpia. I've been looking forward to hearing your thoughts since... Uh, well, since I first read it, so I'm happy to finally have them here, and uh, I'm also relieved to find out that I'm not completely insane and not caring for it. So, uh, thanks again. Next up, we got Meal talking about X-Men number 7, The Crucible Issue. Now, Meal says, The Crucible. Get rid of the cruce, add a D and an I, switch it around, change the E to an O, and it becomes Diablo, because this thing is evil. I remember that you used the anal analogy of converting to a new religion. But there's a difference between water and death. The experiences of death are still there, unless you're Domino, but I think people forget that the effects of your death on your loved ones still exists. In this issue, while maybe Melody was fine with dying, Sam and Paige were clearly not thrilled with seeing their little sister dying. Honestly, I feel for Sam. Imagine going to this place, which you've been promised by your boyfriend, I mean best friend, is the best place on earth for your species. And immediately, your sister is murdered by a man who you've fought with throughout the years while your fellow mutants cheer this all on. I mean, let's not get started on the crowd. Though I admit I am intrigued by how the human world would react to all this. So until Jean gets a new outfit, be mine, X-Lapsed. Well, Jean changes her outfits quite often these days, doesn't she? But, um, yes, uh, the Crucible. I do enjoy talking about the Crucible. I think <laughs> over the course of the past... 
236 episodes um, Boy, I don't know if there's a subject we've talked more about Than The Crucible Because, uh, yeah, The Crucible is very, very challenging And yeah, there's certainly an argument to be made That it is, uh, that it is evil And that it is uh, something that The Krakoans are overlooking They're overlooking the the nasty parts of it In order to sort of kind of massage it into their culture And this is all touched on uh, just perfectly in uh, Way of X Way of X brings up things like the Crucible as Something to make a society cohesive, right? Anytime you're in a society that grows to a point where there are Hundreds of thousands or millions of members It's harder and harder to unify under under customs and, and traditions here Because things splinter, right? More minds, more families, more experiences Traditions change, traditions evolve, traditions get left behind And what was once a society becomes many, many sub-societies So things like the Crucible are a way to bind Krakoans together, right? This is a ritual that they all have in common. It's definitely a very, very interesting and challenging uh, subject or concept, and I am still very excited to see where this ultimately goes uh, when when it's time to put the toys away, right? I, I, I talk about walking things back a lot on this show because this is such a drastically different take on these characters who've been around for, you know, half a century at this point. And it's a, it's a toughie. It's definitely a toughie. But I definitely appreciate your thoughts on The Crucible and always look forward to hearing from you. So thank you so much, Meal. Now, before we get out of here, we do have some shout-outs. Some kind folks who uh, click the heart or the thumbs up or the swirly thing to help share uh, this show. So over on Twitter, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Chris Bailey, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, 21st Century Boys, Jason Colby, Walt Nealon, Professor Frenzy, Joe Crawford, Jeremiah, and Between the Pages blog. Thank you all so much for the signal boosts. Over on Facebook, Al Sedano, Joe Crawford, Jeremiah, Jesse, Billy D, Evan Bevins, Walt Nealon, and Pat Sampson. Thank you all so, so much. And like I've been saying, it really shouldn't matter to me if people click the little thumbs up or the heart, but uh, it does give me the impression that people actually care about this show. So I do appreciate it more than... uh, more than I can adequately put into words, so thank you all very, very much. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for, uh, well, I guess any reason, <laughs> you can find me several different places on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can leave a message at the x voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com for blog posts and show notes. You can also leave comments over there if you'd like. And you could join us on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men, where we're talking about a lot of fun stuff, including the future of this line. Where is it going? Where has it been? And uh, what's in store for us? Having some good times over there. I look forward to seeing you there. Finally, for the Chris and Reggie audio archives and the entire X-Labs family of shows, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available everywhere the internet aggregates noise and sound. But with all that said, we are out of here. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.